There's an old Australian stockman lying, dying. And he gets himself up onto one elbow and he turns to his mates who are gathered round him and he says... Watch me while the bees feed, mate. Watch me while the bees feed. They're a dangerous breed, mate. So watch me while the bees feed. All together now, tie me kangaroo down, sport. Tie me kangaroo down. Tie me kangaroo down, sport. Tie me kangaroo down. Keep me cockadoo cool, cool. Just keep Hello, my name is Holly Lewis. I'm Lawson Keeney. And I am Sean Lewis. And welcome to The Long Watch, the internet's premier pro-John Lithgow podcast where we stick to the list for better or worse. This week we have watched our first explicitly Australian film, not just directed by an Australian, not just made in Australia, but about Australia as well. We have of course watched Wolf Creek 2, which is the sequel to the slasher film Wolf Creek. We decide there's a little more going on here than there is in the first one. Yeah. But before we get into that, we'll talk about what we've seen within the week. Lawson, why don't you start us off? We've all watched a movie in the cinemas together. We have indeed. We've all seen the new Wes Anderson movie, The French Dispatch. It's a comedy anthology, as already mentioned, directed by Wes Anderson. And it is set in the French town of Ennui. No, seriously, that's that's the name of the town. And it's really just, it's centered around The French Dispatch, which is this sort of expatriate magazine that sends a little segment back to a Kansas newspaper every month talking about what's going on in France. Uh, It's really just like rich people using their money to hang out in France and and write this little magazine thing. But it is a series of little stories from this magazine. One month's issue, you get a couple of little, well, a trilogy of, of proper stories and then a couple of little like other slice of life things and some some interstitials in between so why don't we just start off with us going around and and saying what we think of this and then i'll do my thing i personally don't think this could be any more wes anderson than it already is it's one of those pure crystallizations of his style and framing what i always appreciate when i see a wes anderson movie and i've said this before when we've covered some of those films being uh, rushmore and Royal Tenenbaums is Anderson's precision. He's a very precise filmmaker, and that comes down to a lot of the framing and acting decisions he gets his performance to make. I think this was great. I, I loved it. It's certainly up there as one of my top three Wes Anderson movies. Yeah, this is fantastic. It is very much more along the lines of something like The Grand Budapest Hotel, where the style has crystallized in the way that it's like a picture book. Uh, that it's like one of these uh, wood carvings from a fairy tale kind of thing. This is very good. The vignettes are spread out across all of these different communities within Ennui. You've got criminals, you've got the police, you've got young revolutionaries, you've got a reporter who goes around on a bike being accosted by youths. It's fantastic. The cast here is exceptional. It's basically Wes Anderson's rogues gallery. If you'll give me a moment here, I actually have a list. Yeah. It's a big one. Bill Murray, Willem Dafoe, Timothy Chalamet, Leah Sadu, Jason Schwartzman, Saoirse Ronan, Tilda Swinton, Adrian Brody, Benicio Del Toro, Jeffrey Wright, Christoph Waltz, Tony Revolori, Liev Schreiber... 
Edward Norton, Francis McDormand, Owen Wilson, Elizabeth Moss, Angelica Houston, Henry Winkler, Bob Balaban, Griffin Dunn, and Matthew Amalric. Yeah, and there's there's a few new faces and few new names there. Oh yeah, Timothy Chalamet was like made in a lab to work in a in a Wes Anderson <laughs> movie. And I mean Jeffrey Wright is just going from strength to strength. He's incredible in this. The dialogue Wes Anderson writes sings when it comes out of Jeffrey Wright. Uh, I really love this movie as well. It was a return to form for me for Anderson. I've, I, I am kind of hit and miss with Anderson, I've, I've realised, uh, which I'll be getting to later on in this episode with, with a miss that I, that I saw on, on the list. But like, I, I seem to run hot and cold. Like, I love Rushmore. Not a big fan of Bottle Rocket. Like, I loved Grand Budapest Hotel. Not the biggest fan of Isle of Dogs. Sure. So it was good to to see uh, another Wes Anderson movie that I really really loved because I love his aesthetic so much. Like it, it's <laughs> it's such an interesting aesthetic. It is so I the thing that I will always remember whenever I think about Wes Anderson as a director is. I can't even remember the critic who said it, but I remember reading a comment by some critic about Fantastic Mr. Fox who, who called that like the perfect Wes Anderson movie because, because it was stop motion. He literally, there was nothing he had, he didn't have to worry about actors. He didn't have to worry about, yeah. you know, the elements. Like it was, was literally this thing that he could go in and manipulate himself to make perfect. Yeah. Mm. He could control everything so specifically. And that's, well, that's why it's up there's, probably my favorite was Anderson. Like you said, Harley, it's so much about precision and that very particular, very twee, self-aware, you're watching a movie kind of presentation. One of the elements to use here that I haven't seen very much before in Wes Anderson's work, which is freeze frame tableaus, but instead of the people actually being stopped, they're just standing in place. Mm. Uh, those were very fun. Adrian Brody's good here too. You get more of the foppish side of his acting, which I adore. It's always so hilarious. There are three main stories here. Adrian Brody is in the first with Benicio del Toro as sort of this this art dealer in in prison for what is it, tax evasion or something? Or fraud yeah. or something. Yeah. But he's in prison. Adrian Brody plays him and he sort of encounters Benicio del Toro as is this convicted murderer who is a fantastic Artist, well, I say fantastic. It looks kind of like a blur to me, but you know these these art world people get super excited about it, and it becomes this kind of phenomenon. But I think that was my favourite of all of the stories. Yeah. Uh, in large mm. part due to Adrian Brody's performance. I think that's a, that's great fun. That performance, he's really going for it in a way that kind of. I mean, if Ray Fiennes was going to be in this movie, that would have been the role for Ray Fiennes. Yeah, and I do hope that Ray Fiennes gets gets another Wes Anderson movie under his belt eventually. It is stunning to me, stunning that he was not nominated for an Oscar for that movie. And that's not like, oh, the, the Academy never nominates the people it should nominate. Like, no, he he should have been nominated because that movie got nominated for like a dozen awards. Mm. It was, yeah. he was nominated at every like precursor award ceremony. He won a lot of them. And come morning, he, he can't even get in there. And I, I think that's... It's still inexplicable, but uh, but yeah, the second story is sort of this student protest kind of thing um, with Timothy Chalamet. I think that's probably for me the weakest story, but I still did like it. It's sort of 
Anderson getting up on his soapbox to express his uh, exasperation with a certain type of political agitator who are so focused on being pure that they end up eating their own rather than actually affecting change. Mm. And then the third one is is Jeffrey Wright as this food critic who kind of inexplicably in the course of doing his work gets caught up covering the kidnapping of the police chief's son. But yeah, Jeffrey Wright is like outstanding in this. Oh, yeah. Easily one of the best actors in the movie. Yeah. Adrian Brody and Jeffrey Wright are the only are the two that if I was producing this film and distributing it, those are the ones I'd put my awards campaign money behind because those are the ones I think stand out the most. Yeah. And, and I'd probably give it to Wright, personally. Oh, yeah. I love what Brody's doing, but I'd definitely give it to Wright. No, it was fantastic. I, I highly recommend it if you can get a chance to see it. Yeah. It's not that easy to track down a screening. It's a very good one. And the newer cast members to... Wes Anderson's traveling circus acquit themselves very respectfully. I mean, it's already out on Blu-ray overseas, so, I mean, it'll sooner or later just be on Disney+. Plus. Yeah, it's one of those movies that came late for us. Next, uh, for, for me, I also saw by myself The Tragedy of Macbeth, which is an Apple movie. It actually came to a cinema. I, I really went out of my way, actually. To, uh, to see this. I caught two buses to get to where I needed to go to see this. The Tragedy of Macbeth is, is the full name of Macbeth. It's on, you know, the, the 1600s manuscripts and editions. Like, that was the full name. It just sort of got simplified down to Macbeth as the years went on. But this one's properly called The Tragedy of Macbeth, I suppose, to, to differentiate it from other recent Macbeth adaptations. I mean, we did just get a big-budget Macbeth adaptation in 2015 with Michael Fassbender. That one was okay. Of course, this is based on the uh, the William Shakespeare play. It's, I've talked about versions of Macbeth here before, so I'm not going to dwell on the story too much. But uh, Macbeth is played by Denzel Washington here. He comes across these witches played by... Kath- all of th- well, three of them played by Catherine Hunter, who prophesy that he will become king of Scotland, and so his scheming wife, Lady Macbeth, played by Frances McDormand, convinces him to assassinate the king, King Duncan, played by Brendan Gleeson. This is just magnificent. It is so, so good. I've talked before about how Macbeth kind of leaves me cold normally, that I've seen like three or four different versions of it before this movie, and none of them ever really gelled for me. Mm. Did you see the... um? God, the Roman Polanski one? Bits and pieces of it when we studied back Macbeth in high school, but not the whole way through. We watched the Roman Polanski one the whole way through in high school. That's an adventure. <laughs> well, there's a lot there's there's a lot of veins of criticism that think that you can read that fairly heavily as a, being about the Sharon Tate. Yeah, definitely, yeah. But this new version here is so fantastic. It's in black and white. It's it's not quite in 4x3. A little wider? No, the black bars on either side are kind of slanted diagonally so that the, the picture gets narrower towards the top of the screen. It's Ooh. so, so slight. You, be- you can barely notice it unless you're looking. That is cool. It's a very interesting presentation. And the whole thing has this sort of stage-bound style. It has that old-fashioned, like, Wizard of Oz kind of... They're not even trying to make it look like this wasn't done on stage. Could you imagine 
it being silent with dialogue cards. Yeah, but that would like be so beside the point because you get such great performances here. Like Denzel Washington is outstanding. Francis McDormand is brilliant. It feels like Francis McDormand was born to play Lady Macbeth. And that, that stage-bound style is just so visually interesting and just it, – it's very sort of simplified. Like, there's not a lot of detail. Like, the world that it is establishing is not densely populated with objects or, or anything like that. It is sort of clean and sparse in its presentation and it's, it's sort of stylized in the way that it's presented like that. It's sort of very straight lines and clean spaces and things and it, it just looks – incredible i would be so on board for like shakespeare adaptations all of them in this style like it's just got such a great look to it it's intense too like it it is even though it's a story i've seen before it's made really intense by the acting choices by the way that cohen chooses to shoot it uh by the sort of incredible sound design and sort of mounting score in the background and uh the story is is abridged from the full text uh, of the play, but there are some expansions that are made as well, just visual expansions, that the way that Cohen chooses to show things gives it a new context or he'll will, will add in something visually. Like, the script itself is unchanged, other than being cut down a little bit from Shakespeare's work, but, like, we see the murder of Duncan in this. Oh. And... That's not normal. And there's a, there's a character of Ross played by Alex Hassel, who is one of the, the servants, who is given much greater agency in the play, much greater focus just through the presentation here and the way that Cohen chooses to focus on him. He's made into a really interesting character in a way that I've never seen that character played before. He's made sort of kind of Machiavellian. Alex Hassel, who plays him, is third build. Behind, uh, behind Denzel Washington and Francis McDormand, so they really intensify the role of that character. The the cinematography is is really like just standout. Bruno Delbanel is the cinematographer for this. It might be the best looking movie of twenty twenty one. It is just a gorgeous film. It's so well done in terms of the adaptation of of the work. I think you guys will really love it when you get around to watching it. And um, yeah, finally, there's a version of Macbeth that I can sort of latch onto. And be like, yes, yes, I, I like this a lot. At home, I watched The Family Stone. It is a Christmas romantic comedy directed by Thomas Bazooka. <gasps> Bazooka? Yes. Let me tell you, he has kind of a weird filmography. I mean, he directed this, and then he directed no movies at all until some forgotten thing called Monte Carlo. And then he directed no movies at all again until he directed, like, the neo-noir Kevin Costner Western from last year, or two years ago now, Let Him Go. But he's also now directing episodes of Secret Invasion for Marvel. Hmm. It's, it's a weird filmography. And in between, he wrote the script for the Guernsey Literary and Potato Peel Pie Society. Which sounds like the title of a Wes Anderson movie. <laughs> this movie is about Meredith. She's played by Sarah Jessica Parker. She is... Going to meet her boyfriend's family at Christmas for the first time, her boyfriend Everett, played by Dermot Mulroney, and she's she's a bit stuck up, she's a bit awkward, and the family doesn't really like her, and, and this is made more complicated by the fact that Everett is planning to propose to her on Christmas Day, and, and to 
he's asking for the sort of heirloom ring that was promised to him that he can give to this woman that the family doesn't like. Which sort of gives it, you know, a a double meaning for the title there. There's the family stone in that it's the stone family. That's where everyone's going for Christmas is, is, you know, the extended stone family gathering. But it's the family stone as in the ring as well. It's cheesy, but it's nice. It's good fun. Meredith is actually kind of the least interesting part here. The whole family around her is so much more interesting. There's just a lot of really quirky roles. It feels really lived in. It feels like an actual family of people who know each other and have spent a lot of time with each other. There is just little details like that there's one of the the brothers in the family is deaf. And so there's just sort of casual sign language thrown into a lot of conversations and but it's like shorthand sign language as well it's not perfect it's sort of very studied in the way that they've gone about it meredith is a character i mean she does deserve sympathy the family are a bit mean to her but she does not help herself she just keeps digging that hole deeper and deeper and deeper and that's some of the great comedy of this is it, it does have a really amusing script here there's a lot of clever witty things going on uh in the script and there's this sort of second part of the plot that comes but because meredith's having such a hard time she like calls in her sister julie played by claire danes to come and um come and stay and help her out and it goes into this like weird thing where julie actually is far more of a match for everett than meredith is and Meredith actually, like, starts to become attracted to Everett's brother, who's played by Luke Wilson. But I will say that the brother, Ben, comes across, like, way creepier than intended. Like, he he comes across like a, like a real lech. Hmm. And uh, I don't think that the filmmakers intended that or know that it's happened. But there are, like, some shades of sadness here, too. There's Sybil, the family matriarch, played by Diane Keaton. She is dying of cancer and... No one knows that except her and her husband, played by Craig T. Nelson. But the whole family starts to learn that as the, the movie goes on. I mean, it's just a powerhouse cast here. Like, there's Keaton, there's Craig T. Nelson, Rachel McAdams is in a supporting role here. She just has this, like, outs... The MVP line reading of the whole thing, outstanding caddy line reading where, you know, Meredith snaps at her at one point and is like, you know, I, I don't care what you think. And Rachel McAdams just sort of looks at her over the top of her glasses and says, oh, of course you do. Really, I wanted a movie about the family without all this boring Meredith Everett stuff attached to it. And, I mean, the ending is too convenient a wrap-up. You can probably already predict what it is from the the plot details I've given to you. It's it's a bit silly, but it's available for streaming on Disney Plus and Foxtel Now in Australia if anyone's interested. And next door, Munich. It is an historical thriller directed by Steven Spielberg. It is based on the non-fiction book Vengeance, the true story of an Israeli counter-terrorist team by George Jonas. And it is set in the aftermath of the 1972 Munich Olympics massacre when the Israeli team for, I forget which which sport it was, but one of the Israeli teams was killed by a number of, of Palestinian terrorists who a lot of them, you know, the people who planned it were still at large. And so... The Israelis started this sort of black ops operation, Operation Wrath of God, they called it, to track down the people who planned this and assassinate them. And the the, the character in charge of this is Avner Kaufman, played by Eric Banner, which, as far as I can gather, is like a fictional name for a real person. This is really complex and, mo- and moody. There is a 
refusal to make things clear-cut. It was all about morality and law and the sort of murky spy world. The team's belief in whether what they're doing is right kind of erodes as time goes on. It just kind of gets messier. There's, you know, conversations about extrajudicial assassination and is that ever justified? There's conversations about how this whole Israeli-Palestinian conflict just goes back and forth and they kill us, so we kill them, so they kill us, so we kill them. And at the end of the day, all only thing that you get is more dead people. And there's just a lot going on here. And it, and it proved controversial a little bit when it came out. There was a, a little bit from both sides. I saw some people calling it Israeli propaganda when I looked into the reception of this. But the, the majority of it came from the pro-Israel side of things because they saw it as equating counterterrorism with terrorism. There were some questions of validity as well, because a lot of this stuff is top secret, that this is, you know, just the stuff that this these non-fiction books have come out about it, but the Israeli government denies that it happened in that way or whatever. But there's actually an introduction to the movie on the Blu-ray from Steven Spielberg, and he seems really defensive. He seems really on the defensive, actually, uh, in a way that I found quite interesting, because... I think that those criticisms of the movie are kind of missing the point. It's kind of about the sort of futility of intractable conflict and the way that no one can win in the end. Yeah. And and it is, a, like like with War of the Worlds, this came out like six months after the War of the Worlds. This was one of Spielberg's two movies in one year situations. It's it's clearly concerned with 9-11 and the, the undercurrent of, you know, America's response to 9-11 that... They attacked us, so we attacked them, and what did it get us? Yeah. The movie ends, because of course it's cut, it's set in the 1970s, it ends with a shot of Eric Banner in front of the, the New York City skyline with the Twin Towers very prominently in the background. Like, he wants you to think about this. And I, I kind of wonder whether that cut to the quick for a lot of conservative American critics who seemed to be the ones that kind of had a problem with the movie's presentation of this. But uh, it is a great cast here. There's Banner, there's Kieran Hines, Hans Zischler, Matthew Omerich, Michael Lonsdale. There are these flashbacks cut throughout of the actual massacre itself, of the events of Munich, but I think it's mishandled by being cut up like that because I I think it would have had more impact if we had just started with it and seen it in full rather than it just being, you know, stop, start, stop, start, stop, start. And the way that they cut it in, especially towards the end, the scenes that they choose to put the the flashbacks in kind of undermine it. But, like, I, I was watching the behind the scenes footage and one of the athletes who was murdered, his actual son plays him. Like mm. he reenacts his father's murder, and that's that's kind of intense. Yeah, but the movie looks great. It looks very gritty and sort of there is no gloss to it. There's no sheen. It's just kind of grimy, and it, it looks really good. If there is a, uh, I don't know. Um, I don't know whether I think this is a criticism or not. But it is kind of frustrating. It, it doesn't even pretend to have an answer to these questions. You know, it raises all of these questions, but it kind of sits on the fence about what it actually thinks, about what actually the path forward should be. And obviously it kind of just pisses off everybody by doing that. I mean, you, you can't really map any particular ideology to this other than war is bad, terrorism is bad, 
I mean, it's kind of a third rail topic anyway. They'd be pissing off someone no matter what they did. But there is kind of like a, you know, pick a lane thing going on at the end. Not not like pick a side, but pick a lane, pick a point of view that you're that you're actually saying here rather than just saying, this is pretty messed up, isn't it? See you guys later. Which is kind of how it how it rolls at the very end. So it's missing some of the nuanced discussion on the topic. It's not missing nuance, but it's it's like all discussion, no conclusion. Right. Yeah, because it is sort of fighting this losing battle. It's an uphill fight because the moment you start saying stuff like, why are these people being terrorists? Then people start sort of getting iffy at you about trying to understand. Because trying to understand, for them, seems like it's erring too close to empathy. Yeah. Uh, anyways, it's available for streaming in Australia on stand, if anyone is interested. The other Wes Anderson movie I mentioned, The Miss, was The Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou. Uh, it mm-hmm. is an absurdist dramedy. It <laughs> follows the Jacques Cousteau figure, this parody of Jacques Cousteau named Steve Zissou, played by Bill Murray, and he is out to shoot his latest documentary, tracking down the tiger shark that ate his longtime collaborator. While he's doing that, he is contacted by his adult son, Ned, played by Owen Wilson, this son that he didn't know that he had. This is a really, really messy movie. It's got this sprawling narrative with multiple strands running through it. It's got pirates. It's got divorce. It's got a love triangle. Like, there's so much going through it, but its eyes are too big for its stomach, and it... um. And it can't pull it off. And incredibly, it cost $50 million to make. I don't know who in their right mind gave Wes Anderson $50 million to make a movie. I mean, yes, he was coming off of the Royal Tenenbaums, but like Wes Anderson makes really good movies for an incredibly small niche of the movie-going audience. Yeah. And they were never going to recoup that, and they didn't. It was a massive flop. I have mentioned before that this was actually the first Wes Anderson movie I ever saw. Much like I followed Samuel L. Jackson to SWAT after seeing him in Star Wars, 10-year-old me followed Kate Blanchett from The Lord of the Rings to The Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou. And I did not have the understanding or the bandwidth to to even deal with Wes Anderson as a concept. Mm. And Life Aquatic specifically is not where your intro to Wes should be. No, it's, it's, like I said, it's very messy. And like the, the problem is, is that I don't think it's a very good movie to start off with. So, so I was especially not, not taken by it. It is more dour than usual, not always successfully, but it's, it's themes are kind of opaque. It, it almost seems like a bundling up of Anderson's own concerns. The idea of this entertainer, this filmmaker whose career is stagnating. Distant father figures which run through all of Anderson's movies. The idea of losing a collaborator. Of course, he had written his first few movies with Owen Wilson and then Wilson didn't have the time anymore. And I mean, like the whole idea of Steve Zissou sort of scrounging for funding and hustling for funding and then it all gets stolen by pirates, kind of... Mm. If you squint, you can see that as like an online pirate movie piracy kind of allegory there. Mm. But it, none of it really coheres. I mean, it's best with the wilder swings. Like, there's this whole subplot where pirates attack the ship and their accountant gets kidnapped. Like, that's the best stuff because it's like the weirdest. 
But, I mean, it's... it's... I like how strange Willem Dafoe is. Oh, yeah, yeah. He's sort of this very sort of childish kind of character. It's really one of the first times he got the opportunity to try his hand at comedy. Mm. Mm. But the movie is just too long. They needed to cut down a lot from the first half, I think. And there's there's like a, a lack of catharsis for the characters and for their character arcs. I think that might be the point, but it doesn't make it any less frustrating. Steve Sousseau is the only one who gets kind of a catharsis with his arc. All of the other characters are sort of just along for the ride for Steve. Yeah. And the cast is kind of underwhelming as well. I don't think most people stand out here except for Kate Blanchett, who is... I don't even know what she's doing. I mean, part of me wants to say a sort of My Girl Friday kind of thing, but I'm not sure. But she's really, really fun. The ending's beautiful, though. I mean, it's it's surprising as well. It goes in places you don't expect, and it's it's kind of like a, a gorgeous emotional finale, but I'm not sure that the movie really earns it. But there's like some charmingly dinky effects as well, like these very intentionally dodgy claymation underwater life. Yeah. Whenever you see a, a shark or a fish or, or an octopus or anything, it's this sort of like, it, it kind of looks like the kind of animation that Pingu was done with. Newt, newt! Yes, Holly. Newt, newt. It just feels clumsy and bloated. It's available for streaming on Disney Plus if anyone's interested. I next watched Capote. It is a biopic directed by Bennett Miller. It is based on the biography of the same name by Gerald Clark. It's set in 1959 around the Clutter family murders in Kansas. And we follow Truman Capote, played here by Philip Seymour Hoffman. He's a writer for The New Yorker. He also writes fiction. He had already written at this point Breakfast at Tiffany's. And he and his childhood friend Harper Lee, yes, that one, the one that wrote <laughs> Kill a Mockingbird, she's played by Catherine Keener, they go to investigate these murders to write an article for The New Yorker, and he instead gets so taken by what has happened there and so inspired by what's happened there. And in investigating, he forms this sort of back-and-forth relationship with one of the killers, Perry Smith, played by Clifton Collins Jr., that he decides to write a, a book, a really groundbreaking book called In Cold Blood that basically invented the true crime genre. Mm. This was one of those, like, weird... One of the weirder, I should say dueling movie situations that deep impact and armageddon or the cave and the descent it was like dueling truman capote in cold blood movies <laughs> there was another one called infamous that came out the next year covering the exact same events except it was toby jones as capote and sandra bullock as harper lee okay. i can see that uh, I watched some clips. It didn't. It didn't seem as good as this. It didn't have the same kind of I don't know grace and delicacy as this does. But I mean, Hoffman encapsulates the man. Oh yes, he won the best actor Oscar for for this. It, he is incredible, like creepily accurate. Because that's the thing about Capote is he is he was such an idiosyncratic guy. Like not only in the way that he moved and held himself and looked, but in the way that he talked as well, he has one of those like instantly recognizable voices that has been parodied from everything from from The Simpsons to Star Wars: The Clone Wars. <laughs> that the hut in the Clone Wars movie that's orchestrating the whole thing is just a Capote parody. But he's got that kind of like, uh, "Hello, I'm Truman Capote. I'm here to write my true crime novel." You literally just sounded like a leprechaun. Well, he kind of does. <laughs> 
I will, and, and it is like creepily accurate. Like, just so you know what I'm talking about here, yeah. I will patch in three sections of audio right now. I will patch in Capote actually talking in real life, followed by Phil- Philip Seymour Hoffman in this film, followed by The Hut in Star Wars The Clone Wars. <laughs> Why are you wearing those dark glasses? Well, because because I actually had a whole lot of new glasses made because I needed stronger glasses, and I found that they were so uncomfortable, mm-hmm. and, you know, that sort of pulling your eyes out of your head that I just went back to wearing these because, I mean, these got lenses in them, see? Yeah. But it it doesn't uh, it doesn't give me these ferocious headaches. I mean, I guess it's sort of like you know, having to get used to a hearing aid or something like that. Oh, it's the hardest when someone has a notion about you and it's impossible to convince them otherwise. Because since I was a child, folks have thought they had me pegged because of the way I the way I am. You know, the way I talk and. And they're always wrong. What is it, Kronos 327? My mission to the 12th moon of Yout has failed. <laughs> After all these years, my most trusted of assassins has finally failed. Take him away and use him for spare parts. No, no. But yeah, listeners can hear how creepily accurate that is and and they will they will obviously recognize that voice if not from having heard capote speak in in archival recordings but like the proliferation of it in pop culture but it it really centers him in this movie here not always successfully he's a complex character he's likable but he's kind of an asshole i mean he is 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 very affable but he is kind of capricious he manipulates events he lies to the people around him to try and get better material. There's been a lot of stuff that's come out about since his death that he maybe fudged the facts a lot. But, I mean, Hoffman is just a a, a superpower here. Like, he is so intense, so great as this character. He absolutely deserved the Oscar. He It, it is such a great example of how good Philip Seymour Hoffman was. But I, I think its presentation of Capote is shallow, though. You never really know him. What is it saying about him? I'm not sure, having seen it. Uh, like, there's a sort of this vague suggestion that he might be falling in love with the killer, but that's not really taken anywhere. And, and it kind of just skips around in time too much. Like, it's set over a very long period of time, almost 10 years, so it's jumping forward and forward and forward in, like, these big leaps in chronology in a way that always kind of bothers me in biopics but it also leaves the relationship between them kind of underexplored and under textured and the third act sort of just sputters out but it is incredibly well photographed there's these very sort of long careful shots that are really good it's available for streaming on stand if anyone is interested i saw when a stranger calls it is a horror thriller directed by simon west it is based on the 1979 fred walton movie of the same name a babysitter named Jill, played by Camilla Bell, is you know, babysitting at this rich person's house in the middle of nowhere. And she starts getting these creepy phone calls from a stranger, played by Lance Henriksen, who says creepy things and it quickly becomes apparent that he can see her. He's a stranger who called. I mean, people know the twist from the original. Um, like, it is the movie that really popularised in the in the public consciousness the idea of 
Jill, we've traced the call. It's coming from inside the house. Yeah. Even though it had been done before that in Black Christmas and even before that it was like an urban legend, but the original was the movie that populated it. What people forget was that was the first 20 minutes of that movie. When a Stranger Calls, the original, which I watched before we started this podcast in the early days of the list, the first 20 minutes was was that sort of cat and mouse. And then the rest of the movie was sort of 10 years later after the murderer escapes from prison and it's the detectives trying to track him down. But no one remembers that because that was kind of boring. They just rem- remember that first 20 minutes. And so this movie has just taken that first 20 minutes and stretched it out to feature length. It's not a bad idea, but they haven't expanded it enough for it to work like that. It needed more to fill it out. It needed more episodes, more little things to happen within that time. And West is just not a particularly good director. He directed the first Lara Croft movie, which I believe to be an abomination. (laughs) So uh, he can't exactly elevate the material either. What I think is that the killer needed to be more chatty. The killer was very chatty in the original movie, but here he just sort of (sighs) breathes heavily and says creepy stuff like, I want your blood all over me. Hmm. Needs to needs to be more of a ghost face. Yeah, absolutely, that's exactly. He, you need more more back and forth like the the Drew Barrymore sequence in Ghostface, which was in and of itself kind of kind of a take on when a stranger calls. Yeah, but Lance Henriksen as the voice just works. Like this is a backhanded compliment, but Lance Henriksen was was born to voice a, a serial killer prank calling people on the phone. Yeah. <laughs> Belle, as a lead actress, does, just doesn't hold the screen either. She's not very good here. And the supporting cast kind of outclasses her. Like, the supporting cast, you've got Katie Cassidy, who, of course, was on Arrow for many years now. Tessa Thompson is in the supporting cast. I'm like, okay, great, right there. Just, like, swap her out for one of her, yeah. you know, friends in the cast, and you've got a better movie. But you've also got, like, Clark Gregg fairly briefly as her father. Um, so she just sort of just gets outmatched by everyone that she's on screen with and everyone that, like, even when she's just by herself on the phone, it's Lance Henriksen, who is a far more dynamic presence via his voice than she ever is via her, you know, whole performance. And that's a problem when, for the vast majority of the movie, she's the only person on screen. Yeah. I will say that the setting is a positive improvement. I mean, you get this rich guy's house on a lake. It's very large. It's very remote. Um, it's it's one of those, like, big glass windows that are just, like, the walls are yeah. all glass windows. So it, like, gives her nowhere to hide. He could be looking at her from anywhere. She's sort of vulnerable from all sides. There is a good movie here somewhere, but it's not this movie. And it's not the original movie either, but I, I do think it is there somewhere. Moving on, um, I will be talking about these for a little while. Well, probably for a few weeks, actually. But I've moved on to animated Marvel movies. And we have tried to structure this so we will hopefully not have to do a, an episode on, an, on any of these. Because I think we were all worn out by our DC Animated Universe ones. And none of these, spoiler alert, are as good. <laughs> DC has a much better track record with animated films. Yeah, but I'll be talking about these over the next few weeks. Uh, but the last movies I have to talk about this week are uh, the first three Marvel animated movies. There is Ultimate Avengers, an animated superhero movie directed by Kurt Gator, 
Stephen E. Gordon and Bob Richardson. It's based on the Marvel Ultimates line uh, when they were rebooting their franchises. It's based on the, the Ultimate Avengers stories here. And in it, the Avengers must assemble to stop this scheme by the, the Shatari, the alien race, from... I'm not even sure what they want. The movie doesn't explain that. It's an inauspicious start to what will be a 30, 35 title marathon for me. <laughs> it's just a big nothing of a plot. The villains are totally irrelevant and the characters are about as as generic a version of the characters as you could imagine. The team here is comprised of Captain America, voiced by Justin Gross, The Wasp, voiced by Grey Griffin, Hulk, voiced by Michael Massey, Iron Man, voiced by Mark Warden, Black Widow, voiced by Olivia Diabo, Giant Man, voiced by Nolan North, and Thor, voiced by David Boat. But they've really focused in on Captain America specifically and his sort of man-out-of-time aspect of him. They shouldn't have bothered because they have a 70-minute movie that they have to establish the Avengers in and establish a threat in and have, like, a big finale in, and they just don't have the time to do anything at all with that except to, like, show... Like, their version of Bucky in this continuity, in this movie, is, like... An old war buddy of Steve's who, after Steve was presumed dead during a fight with the Shatari, because they give him that sort of previous experience with the villain as well. After Steve was presumed dead, Bucky, like, made the moves on his grieving girlfriend, and <laughs> they got married. And, like, when Steve wakes up, they, like, go and they've lived this whole life happily together, and basically he just goes and looks at their wedding pictures and stuff. Like, it's really, like, kind of, <laughs> I don't know. Hey, Cap. I cucked you. That's what he gets for, you know, making out with his girlfriend's niece at a funeral. Yep. Post... Po- it wasn't at the funeral, Lawson. It was. I was in the church with the coffin, like, right there. Was it not. wasn't? It was <laughs> later on. I might, have made, I might have made this more severe in my head than it was. Yeah, but... you're really <laughs> completing it, things. It was like a day and a half later in a different part of the city Mm, all right i'll take your word on that the animation is less than impressive here as well but dc took a while to warm up as well so i'll withhold judgment for the moment but moving on ultimate avengers 2 is directed by will mignot dick sebast and bob richardson they bring black panther in in this one he's voiced by jeffrey d sams the Shatari are back. Again, I'm not really sure why, what their big plan is. They seem to be setting them up as some sort of ongoing villain for the Ultimate Avengers franchise, which is a pity because they seem to have realised that these movies weren't very good and so they didn't make any more after this. It's a mild improvement, mainly just because the characters are already established, but the arcs that they undergo still feel forced. It, it really feels like it's playing by TV rules. And that doesn't quite work. Black Panther and Wakanda definitely feel like episode of the week. Where do the Avengers go this time? It's to Wakanda to help out Black Panther. And the first half of it is the better half. There's more dialogue and character going on there. But the second half just evolves in a generic action. It's quite dull. And uh, like I said, it still refuses to give any sort of finality, which now it just won't get. The animation is just sloppy as well. I mean, there are some really obvious instances where they have just taken a shot that they have animated and re- retroactively decided to, to like zoom in because they want like a tighter shot. And rather than redraw it, they just zoomed the shot in quite a lot. So it looks really fuzzy and blurry now. 
uh, and then they will sometimes pull out to try and get a, like a panning shot, but like it's so obvious what they've done. But yeah, lastly for this week, The Invincible Iron Man, directed by Patrick Archibald, Jay Oliver, and Frank Poe. Uh, it is an origin story for Iron Man. We follow Tony Stark, played again by Mark Warden. He is this sort of billionaire playboy doing, you know, innovative things with his company, Stark Industries. But when they go to China to try and help the Chinese government unearth a long-buried city, they come under attack by a vigilante sort of pseudo-terrorist group called the Jade Dragons who kidnap him, damage him to the point where he has to have the Iron Man heart put in. They're there because, like, the rise of the the city, the uncovering of the city that Tony has brought about is going to bring about the return of the Mandarin, who in this version of the story was like an ancient Chinese emperor, warlord. I don't know. He, he had a very brutal dynasty and they don't want him to come back. I'm not sure about the continuity here. I'm not sure if it's supposed to be in the same continuity as the Ultimate Avengers movies. It's the same character design. It's the same voice actor. Uh, and there's nothing really that would prove either way. But uh, it is another step up. It's actually working pretty well early on. There's a lot of character stuff. It's not great, but it's adequate. So do they do the Ten Rings for the Mandarin? They lower it down to five. These, these like, supernatural elementals. That's what the Ten Rings originally are. They are ten rings to wear on each finger to control the elements, essentially. Well, there are these, like, elemental servants who need to go and find the five rings that are hidden all about, and then they're going to place them on the Mandarin's dead hands and that'll resurrect him or something. But that's their take on this, is that he was this sort of ancient Chinese warlord. There are some different takes there, like Howard Stark is still alive in this version of the story, and he's sort of feuding with Tony over the running of the company. There's some, some Dark Knight... Batman Begins-style machinations with the board going on in the background as well. But this supporting character of Lee May, played by Gwendolyn Yeo, who is a member of the Jade Dragons, she sort of is a sympathetic character who tries to help Tony. It kind of doesn't work. It never really defines what their relationship is or what their, what the movie thinks their relationship is, is trending towards. And... Uh, it wipes out in the third act, like, just totally. That's, that's, I've noticed a problem with these movies already, that once they start to go into the finale action sequence, it just goes into the most generic action imaginable, and I really hope that improves. But uh, the animation is improved. It looks a lot better. And there's some clumsy but dynamic uses of CG to, like, get the Iron Man suit to work and get the elementals to work and things like that. It, it It's... Not brilliantly integrated into the 2D space, but the the look and the feel that it achieves is quite dynamic. Lastly for this week, I know that I said that I had uh, just finished there, but I, I did forget that I had Wolf Creek 1 to talk about. It is, I don't know if you call it a slasher movie, but it's, it's, it's an Australian horror thriller directed by Greg McLean. Uh, it follows Ben, played by Nathan Phillips, Liz, played by Cassandra McGrath, and Christy, played by Kesty Morassi, they are travelling through Outback Australia when they come across Mick Taylor, played by John Gerrat, who turns out to be a serial killer who uh, attacks them and, and basically becomes kind of a, a cat-and-mouse 
trying to escape him kind of thing. It's it's brutal, but it's compelling. It is a slow burn. There's really nothing violent until minute 50, I checked. It's a lot of character development to start off with. You spend a lot of time with these characters so that when they are put through the ringer, you really empathise with them. And the atmosphere that is created here is chilling. There's a sort of vaguely cosmic element to it all as well. I'm going to save any discussion of that for the deep dive. But the shift into chaos in the second half is extremely tense. I will say I'm so frustrated by some of the characters in this. They make the dumbest possible choices that they could have saved themselves if they had just been a little more smart about it. But Jarrett is is absolutely fantastic as Mick Taylor, as I'm sure we will discuss more. And Mick Taylor as a villain is incredibly dynamic and charismatic. He is a great horror villain. The landscapes look brilliant as well. The themes that run through the movie are all incredibly interesting, especially in cooperation with the second film. And the the cinematography by Francois Tataz just is extraordinary. Like, it emphasises the Australian outback and the Australian landscape in such an interesting way. Uh, so, yeah, that's that's it done for the week for me. What about you guys? What have you been watching? So, to begin with, we decided, because we are going to be doing our best of the year list at a, in around March so that we can slip a few more movies in that got pushed back for Australian audiences, we decided to take this opportunity to catch up on some of the Marvel movies that we missed. So, we watched Black Widow. It is directed by Kate Shortland, and it's a very grim story centered on the history of Natasha Romanov. After the events of Captain America's Civil War, the Black Widow, Scarlett Johansson, is on the run. Coming into the possession of a strange box with vials of an unknown substance, she finds herself in conflict with the mysterious Taskmaster, and is drawn into the path of ghosts from her past, both positive and negative. Brought back into the fold by her sister Yelena, she works to set right mistakes from her past. This is better than I thought it was going to be, and it's less funny overall than clips would suggest. The sadder aspects of the narrative always undercut the comedy, which is the exact opposite of most Marvel movies, which I find very interesting. It is a funny movie, though. You've got a lot of good stuff from Florence Pugh and David Harbour specifically, who carry the comedy of this film. The problem that it is actually that they're so good that Black Widow kind of becomes one of the least interesting characters in her own movie. Yeah, <laughs> yeah kind of. Except when she's on screen with Ray Winstone. Then she is absolutely not the least interesting character on screen when the villain is. Yeah. What's interesting about this movie is that Natasha Romanoff is put on the back foot for basically the whole thing. And you're seeing her have to go to ground after the events of Civil War. And she has these little phone calls with Thunderbolt Ross, and that's always fun. You have a sort of scrounging for information and equipment. She's on the run from a lot of people. They go into a lot of the history of the Red Room, and they expand upon that in very interesting ways. I do agree Ray Winstone is kind of... He's just doing a Boris and Natasha voice, and while Ray Winstone can never do a bad performance, he's one of the least interesting 
villains in a Marvel movie. The problem isn't Ray Winstone. The problem is the character as written. Yeah, it's just, yeah. he's such a dull character. He's right up there with that elf guy in Thor 2. Yeah. yeah. No one will remember him. Personally, I think it should have... This is a movie that... See, I'm conflicted. Because I understand the urge to have it set... Have this come out after Endgame. I don't. A lot of the notes end up being really bittersweet. Because you know where Natasha ends up. But it really should have come out right after Civil War. Yeah. I actually think that if it had come out before Endgame, it would actually have given the Endgame stuff a lot more weight. Yeah. Yeah, it could have come out after Infinity War in sort of that mid middle period with Ant-Man and the Wasp. It contextualizes her decision in Endgame a lot more. Yeah. yeah. It removes a lot of tension because we know where she ends up. I certainly think that if you're doing a, a watch through of the MCU on Blu-ray or Disney Plus in a few years, you absolutely want to watch it before Infinity War Endgame. Yeah. This movie is anchored by a very interesting and artful first half, with the, specifically the title credits using a version of Smells Like Teen Spirit. I was watching this thinking to myself, Jesus Christ, this movie is going there, and I love that. It's also anchored by great performances from David Harbour, Rachel Wise, and the movie's secret weapon, Florence Pugh. Having seen her come in as a character in Hawkeye, She's incredible. She's going to be a big thing for the MCU going forward. It's also got a very interesting score by Lorne Balfe, a composer who continues to surprise me with his textual decisions, the instrumentation decisions. There's very great Russian-sounding choirs in this score whenever the villains are on screen, and I really, really appreciate the vibe of that. It is better than I... thought it was going to be. For me, I quite enjoy the visual design and the visual elements of the Taskmaster. I think Taskmaster is one of those villains that's not so significant as you can't change things, but Taskmaster in the comics is a little more enigmatic. His motivations aren't easy to read. No, and I appreciate what they've done here. It's not like it's someone in a suit and it's moves the person's body for them. No, this is a person who is watching these people do these things and is copying them. And look, I think there was a much more interesting feeling here with having Taskmaster be the the head of the Red Room. Yeah. Like, full stop. Not as the dragon to Ray Winstone. Actually have Taskmaster be the man in charge. Yeah. And that would have been far more interesting, I think. Earlier... I watched Being the Ricardos. Now, my mum and dad put this on, and I was out in the living room, and the moment the movie started, I was sort of sucked in. It's not the kind of movie I would see myself, but I'm glad I did. It is written and directed by Aaron Sorkin. The film follows the relationship of Lucille Ball, played by Nicole Kidman, and Desi Arnaz, played by Javier Bardem, the stars of Isle of Lucy. The film has two central narratives how they met and how their relationship grew and how they created the Isle of Lucy show and a period when the show was under threat due to accusations of communism on Lucille Ball's part. This is set during the Red Scare. Lucy, you got a lot of explaining to do. Basically, yes. This is very well put together and very well written. The performances are great. 
Kidman handles the Sorkin-esque dialogue like she was born to be saying these words. It's incredible. And Bardem is great as Desi Arnaz. He brings the musicality of the man. He brings the fact that Desi Arnaz was a, like, he was a conservative. He bristles at even the assumption that Lucy is a communist because of his past with that kind of thing. Well, he's, he was from Cuba, wasn't he? Yeah. Yeah. So he's like, yeah, very few Cuban-Americans are fans of communism. Yeah. There's also very funny supporting turns from J.K. Simmons, Tony Hale, and Aaliyah Shawkat. Aaliyah Shawkat is a name that I don't know, but I will be on the lookout for her in the future. She's very good in this. She's got a like a, a Natasha Lyonne kind of sarcastic wit to her. She is the lead on Search Party, I believe, and she was also on Arrested Development. Yeah, she's very funny in this. And the chemistry between all the actors is great. J.K. Simmons, I mean, what can't he do? He's playing a real-life person here, one of the cast members on Isle of Lucy. I think he's playing the neighbor. And he's just great here. The way he handles Sorkin is like a Viking swinging an axe. It is brilliant. I've heard a lot of stuff, too, about how interested the movie is about the construction of, of comedy and the, the construction of jokes and the construction of sitcoms. That sounds really interesting to me. It's fascinating. You get a lot of the behind-the-scenes things. Like One of the first scenes is a table read for an episode of Isle of Lucy two days before they filmed it because they would film these things in blocks and they would have the studio audience in there. And during this read-through of the script, Lucille Ball is reading the lights and then she's like no wait pause this should be done like this this should be done like this they're all working to make the show the best that it can be and it is very well done it's a lot of the behind the scenes stuff about which writers are taking credit for which jokes wasn't there like some crazy fact like before before lucy was pregnant on i love lucy like no character had ever been presented as pregnant on american television in film, it's different, but definitely in television. It is just a very well-put-together film. I really enjoyed it. It's not something I would seek out, but I'm glad I watched it. Right, so the last thing we have to talk about this week is yet another Marvel movie. Finally, we're all caught up. Uh, we, of course, have watched Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings, directed by Destin Daniel Cretton. It follows Shang-Chi, also going by the name Sean, played by Simu Liu. A riddleless young man hiding from his past, both metaphorically and literally. He takes on small gigs with his best friend Katie, played by Okofina. He stays under the radar, to not draw the eye of his abusive and obsessive father Wenwu, Tony Leung, the leader of the international criminal terrorist group, the Ten Rings. Drawn back to his father's obsessive search for his dead mother, Shang-Chi must fight his own demons, and his past, to protect his mother's mystical homeland from its very own demons. This is a very... Good movie. It's basically what you get if you got Marvel and made it a martial arts movie, but it keeps things very intimate, I also find. This is very centered around Shang-Chi and his complicated grief. Yeah. Not only for the loss of his mother, but for the loss of his father. And the loss of his childhood. Because while his mother was alive, Wenwu 
actually disbanded the Ten Rings. He abandoned his criminal empire. He abandoned his power so he could live a peaceful life with his family. And the scenes you see of that are really, really sad and upsetting. This is full of really charming characters and a great vi villain in Wenwu. Tony Leung plays the character with pathos and this really understandable obsession built off of grief. And he also has this like very fantastic musical sting. It's got some iffy digital effects throughout. Great color palette and visual design too. Instead of in the comics the Ten Rings being individual rings for each finger, there's sort of these larger rings that go on the arms, and you can like use them to basically do whatever you need to supplement your own martial arts skill, which was fascinating. It also gives you a lot more strength. I want to Morris. Lawson, you know that little little furry dude? Morris is an example of humanity's madness. I I really do want one. It is the best pet ever. Like full stop. It can fly. It has no face, so you know it doesn't need to eat. And since it doesn't need to eat, doesn't produce waste, don't have to pick up after him. And it exists purely on vibes. It also has six legs, which is more than you can say for most popular pets, like cats and dogs, who only have the pathetic amount of four. One of the elements here is a real course correction on the whole Mandarin thing in Iron Man 3. And the movie addresses the Chinese-American experience. I've heard it explained by Simu Liu as a movie about... It's about, like, finding yourself, not only in your future, but also in your past. And there are elements here where Shang-Chi gets to learn about his mother's culture, that he's been separated from his entire life, which is fascinating. We also get the return of Trevor Slattery from Iron Man 3, played by Ben Kingsley, and he's just hilarious. He's sort of like the vehicle for Morris to be talking through. They lean into the Liverpudlian accent hard. He sounds like one of the Beatles. He's also gone insane. Yeah. Because he was broken out of prison by Wenwu and basically locked in a dungeon for nearly a decade. Yeah, but I really, really like this. The action was incredible, and the set pieces were great. Aquafina is really, really charming here, and I'm excited to see where Shang-Chi and Katie go in the future. So you can find Being the Ricardos on Amazon Prime. You can find both Black Widow and Shang-Chi and The Legend of the Ten Rings on Disney+. Now we are going to play for you the trailer to Wolf Creek 2. is doing out here. <laughs> you get hit! Who was that? Who was that? My name's Mick Taylor. Pleased to meet ya. In this world, there's people like me, and there's people like you, and it's up to my kind. 
to wipe your kind out. <laughs> was the trailer for Wolf Creek 2. It is a horror thriller movie directed by Greg McLean and it is set in Outback Australia where a pair of German tourists have crossed paths with the wrong man. Katerina, played by Shannon Ashland, and her boyfriend Rutger, played by Philippe Klaus, are hitchhiking through central Australia but one night as they camp out in the middle of nowhere they are approached by a monster in a flannel shirt. His name is Mick Taylor. He's played by John Gerratt. And while at first glance he could be mistaken for the typical Aussie larrikin, he is actually a xenophobic serial killer who delights in torturing and murdering the foreign tourists he comes across as he roams the Red Centre. Katerina and Rutger soon learn this the hard way. Desperately trying to survive Mick's sudden attack, Katerina flags down a passing British expat named Paul, he's played by Ryan Corr, who stops to help. But the increase in opponents only provokes Mick's rage, and as his pursuit continues, it seems increasingly likely that none of them will ever be heard from again. So, before we get too deep into this, why don't we each go around and give our timed 30-second thoughts on what we think of Wolf Creek 2. Why don't you start us off, Sean? Are you ready? Yep. Three, two, one, go. This is a very interesting film. It is very much a film in stages. It's a chase film. It's a thriller. It's a two-hander short film it's very well put together mick taylor is such a scary thing for me because he is an example of something very australian but we'll get more into that later it's also a brilliant performance by ryan core all right you ready harley mm-hmm. three two one go Wolf Creek 2 is a movie i've spent a lot of time thinking about i've done a lot of study into the idea of australian gothic and this is an example of that. Mick Taylor is more than just a human being, more than just a single character. Mick Taylor is, I wouldn't even call him a perversion of the idea of the larrikin, because the larrikin is an ideal. This is a expanded upon reality. All right, you got me queued up, Sean. Three, two, one. Go. I think this is a great movie. It's intense. Unlike the first one, which has that very long build-up, it gets to the chaos pretty quickly and then it just doesn't let up. I think it's got a lot more going on in the movie than the first one does. I think it is surprisingly political when you really stop to think about it. And I think it has a lot to say about the darker aspects of Australian culture and it just has a lot of really neat ideas. Again, as you said, highly related to the Australian Gothic and related to a sort of vaguely cosmic element, which which I look forward to discussing. But before we get to that, I have here 
a production history for Wolf Creek. Greg McLean first wrote the script for Wolf Creek 1 in 1997. At that point, it was more of a generic slasher, and he was unsatisfied with that, so he shelved it. But he picked it up again after he saw some retrospective coverage of the case of Ivan Milat, and he decided to base Mick Taylor around him and Bradley Murdoch, uh, two of Australia's most notorious murderers. That accounts for the very loose and mostly inaccurate based-on-true-events title at the... Uh, the beginning of each film. Ivan Malat, to start off with here, was a serial killer who preyed on backpackers travelling through Blangalo State Forest in New South Wales. I'm not going to go into detail here, as it is quite grisly, but he killed seven people between 1989 and 1993. In 1993, police rediscovered an unsolved incident from 1990 in which a man had reported being held at gunpoint by someone and that guy tried to take him captive. He escaped. The guy shot after him. He found a passing car and they got away and he reported this. And that seems to match the MO of all of these unsolved murders. So they got a description of the man and the vehicle uh, from this backpacker who actually flew back to Australia to, to help assist police and positively identified Malat. Uh, and around the same time, they also got a, a tip from the girlfriend of a man who worked with Malat, who were just like, this guy is wrong, he's off. <laughs> Check this guy Bad out. Bad vibes. Malat was arrested on the charges of, of attempted abduction uh, for that escaped backpacker in 1994, but they were pretty sure they had their guy. It was basically like they arrested him on those charges, but through that they knew they would be able to search his house. And when they did that, and when they searched the homes of his relatives as well, it was confirmed that he was definitely the killer. They found dozens of weapons, 250 kilograms, a quarter of a ton of ammunition, and items belonging to his victims. Malat maintained his innocence. He always did, up until he died. He tried to blame his family members, particularly his brother Richard. He tried to throw under the bus and say he was the killer, but that did not work. He was found guilty after a trial in 1996, and because Australia has no death penalty, he was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. He died there in 2019. He never admitted his guilt. Though officially he only killed seven people, that's what he was convicted for, police suspect that he probably killed more. At least three other murders dating back to as early as the 1970s strongly match his MO. He was also questioned in prison for inquiries into the cold cases of seven other people. Nothing concrete was ever nailed down though. There are lots of questions about him having a potential accomplice. In uh, 2005, his former lawyer gave a deathbed confession that Malat's sister Shirley, who was already deceased at that point, had assisted in two of the murders. In the first Wolf Creek movie, the deserted mine Mick lives in is run by Navitalum Mining Company. That's Ivan Malat spelled backwards. Navit, Ivan, Talum, Malat. Navitalum, Ivan Malat. Bradley Murdoch, on the other hand, is a convicted killer responsible for the murder of British tourist Peter Falconio in 2001. He was arrested in 2003, so this was all happening while McLean was working on the idea. On the night of the 14th of July 2001, while driving through the outback in the Northern Territory, Falconio and his girlfriend Joanne Lees were flagged down by a car that had been following them. The driver of the car, Murdoch, said that there were sparks coming from the exhaust, and so when Falconio and Murdoch went back under the pretense of, of checking the exhaust. Lees moved into the front seat of the car to be ready to rev the engine so they could 
test this. Uh, she heard a bang, though, and then Murdoch appeared at her window with a gun. And he tied her up and took her to his vehicle. But soon he was gone for a while. He went off somewhere and didn't come back for a few minutes. And she took the opportunity to escape. Her hands were tied, but she had fought having her legs tied. And so she was able to get away. She flagged down a passing trucker. And it took an hour from her rescue to get to a phone to call the police. It took another three hours for the police to actually get to the site that this had all happened at. So this was truly in the middle of nowhere. The police found there a pool of blood as well as the car which had been moved off onto the side of the road where it was had been attempted to be hidden. Peter Falconio's body has never been recovered. It is likely that Murdoch's trip to retrieve it and hide it is what gave Lees the opportunity to escape. Ten months later, in 2002, Murdoch's accomplice in a drug-running scheme was caught and pointed the finger at Murdoch uh, for being involved with the killing. Murdoch had fled by that point, but the police got a DNA sample from his brother, which showed because of all of the the matching dna that yes a relative of this man likely was the the uh the person involved in this attempted abduction and murder they had retrieved dna from the crime scene that uh it, it matched and uh murdoch soon resurfaced after being arrested for an unrelated kidnap and assault arrest in south australia he was extradited but continued to claim his innocence the trial was taking place as wolf creek was released the first film the release in the northern territory was actually cancelled at the request of authorities so as not to influence the jury because of its similarities fair enough understandable murdoch was found guilty in december of 2005 he was sentenced to life in prison he has exhausted all avenues of appeal continued to maintain his innocence and is barred from talking to the press. He will become eligible for parole in 2032 when he will be 74. McLean decided to bind both of these incidents up with Australian larrikin iconography like Steve Irwin. They were they were incidents that had received a lot of international coverage as well, that, that Australia had received a lot of attention overseas from, from the UK, from Europe, because we receive a lot of tourists from that area, a lot of backpackers from that area, young backpackers on a gap year. Uh, and, and so it had sort of become this sort of worldwide thing. So th- by binding that all up into the figure of this Australian larrikin, he really cut to the core of, of something pretty dark that was going on in the, the presentation of Australia, both nationally and, inter- and internationally at the time. And in retrospect, John Girat is actually an extremely savvy choice for the casting of this character. At the time, he was making regular appearances on McLeod's Daughters, where he played the love interest of one of the main characters. McLeod's Daughters is the, the very soap opera-ish it's a country series... Name. It's a country story. It's set on a on a on a horse ranch. We have we have three main uh, long running soaps: Neighbours, Suburban, Home and Away, Coastal, Coastal, McLeod's Daughters, Country. McLeod's Daughters was like only on for eight years, though. It was it was our attempt at like a this is us twenty yeah. episode a year thing, uh, and it actually did really well for for a while. This does not mean like casting aspersions on McLeod's Daughters, but but this was what John Jarrett was known for at the time. He had also in the late nineties for three years been the do it yourself presenter on Better Homes and Gardens, and in the nineteen eighties he had been a presenter on Play School. All right, kids, 
Today I'm going to teach you to hide a body so as no one can ever find it. G'day kids, I'm going to teach you something I learned in Vietnam. It's called Head on a Stick. (laughs) But yeah, so he was sort of the perfect casting to sort of take that good old boy Australian image and totally undermine it with, with... this sort of serial killer element. And, and it's not exactly even a perversion of the idea of the Australian Bushman either. It's... I, it's, a, it's, a, it's a perversion on the ideal of it. On the ideal, yes. Yeah. But the reality is oftentimes less than romantic. But our, our sort of transformation of that ca- that character into a, into a national mascot, the Australian Bushman, the Australian Larrikin, you know, this sort of laid-back guy who, you know, is, is you'd want to drink a beer with, you know, the way that we have transformed that figure uh, into a national myth is very cleverly undercut by the casting of John Jarrett and the mixture of that figure with all of this other stuff, I think. John Jarrett based the performance on his father, except evil. So that sort of very boisterous, you know, avuncular, very amiable sort of character. But then also, what if that guy was secretly a racist like murderer? Mm. The first film was a huge hit in Australia, not so in America, where it got a surprisingly wide release. It was picked up in Dimension Films. There, some critics were so disgusted by it that they walked out of screenings and audiences gave it an F cinema score. One of the very few. And uh, as far as I can tell, that that cinema score seems to be able to be accounted for by the fact that it was marketed as kind of like a Friday the 13th style slasher. And that's not what they got at all. It has become kind of a cult movie over there, though. It has found its audience. McLean didn't want to rush a sequel, though. He decided to go and do Rogue, the killer crocodile movie instead, which was also about tourists being attacked by Australian symbolism because McLean does nothing in life better than make the job of tourism Australia that much more difficult. <laughs> he later regretted, however, not moving on to Wolf Creek 2 immediately because once once there had been that fallow period, it took a lot to get it going again. It was announced in 2010. It received funding from businessman Jeffrey Edelstein and it was set to film in 2011, but Edelstein then pulled his funding. The production company sued. There were all of these claims in court about who said what. It's not very interesting who promised what, blah, blah, blah. But regardless, filming was delayed. Funding was eventually pulled together, including from the government. That's right, Wolf Creek is funded by the Australian government, in part through our our Screen Australia wing. Which is a really important institution to help get Australian film funded and made. We're not a big enough country in terms of population to to have a thriving film industry without subsidisation by the government. I, I just think that's fascinating that the Australian government would have a hand in getting Wolf Creek made. Perhaps there's some sort of Cold War going on between Screen Australia and Tourism Australia. Perhaps Tourism Australia keeps parking in their spot. You know ScoMo started it. But when it came to... This was way before ScoMo's time. Oh, right. Tourism. Yeah, I get it. Yeah. Yeah, the where the bloody hell are ya? Yeah. Throw a shrimp on the barbie. Yes, I do love how that, that say, where the bloody hell are ya in this movie, is turned into, where the bloody hell are you going? Ryan Kaur's audition to play, what was it, Paul? Yeah. Was an, an interesting one. He was interrupt. He, his audition was the full quiz scene, and he was interrupted midway through because the police had been called by neighbouring businesses. 
Ryan Kaur had been screaming at the top of his lungs, uh, you know, very in hysterics, you know, stop hurting me. Ah, please let me go. Da, da, da. And uh, neighbouring businesses, they they done this audition in Greg McLean's office and uh, the people around there were like, Jesus Christ, and they had called the cops. And there's actually some footage of that on the uh, the Blu-ray. But, you know, you've got to kind of love that as an actor, right? To be yeah. in your audition and have the cops called because it sounds so realistic. Like, you've got to walk out of that feeling pretty good about getting the job. Oh, yeah. you you got to walk out and think, I definitely got that, right? And I mean, in a lot of the moments in this movie, when Ryan Core is strapped to the chair with zip ties when mick leaves the room the image of you know just trying to keep it together fades and he just starts shaking yes it's just a brilliant performance the movie was released on the 20th of february 2014 in australia its widest release here was in 218 theaters and it opened number one against lone survivor and nebraska it was successful for a local film. It made $4.38 million on $1.7 million. It made $4.38 million on a $1.7 million budget. It only got theatrical releases in four other countries, however, after the, the general failure of it overseas for the, the first film's release. It was released in Germany, Jordan, Oman, and the United Arab Emirates. It only got $200,000 of its gross outside of Australia. Though. Critics split right down the middle here. It has a 50% Rotten Tomatoes score. The critics' consensus reads, After a strong start, Wolf Creek 2 devolves into an unnecessary and disappointingly predictable sequel. It has no cinema score. Uh, it was not released in America, so it didn't get a cinema score. But it was nominated for a few awards. Given the fact that it was not released in cinemas in America, it actually was nominated for Best DVD slash Blu-ray release at the Saturn Awards. But uh, its its real recognition here was in Australia. Uh, at the Australian Screen Sound Guild, it won the Best Achievement in Mixing for a Feature Film, and it was also nominated for Best Achievement in Sound for a Feature Film, probably for the very disturbing sound design of Paul Rutger getting uh, getting sliced up. In any case, that is the end of the production history there. It, of course, after this movie came out, went on to be evolved into a, a television show, which we will, we will briefly discuss as well. I know you two have both seen it. Uh, and it is... Getting a third film, they are prepping that at the moment. It's scheduled to begin shooting fairly soon. So we will be we seeing this character again. And there has long been talks of a third season of the show as well, which I, I think will probably come sometime around the bend as well. But before we get any further, why don't we just establish whether we have seen the theatrical cut or the director's cut? Director's cut. Okay. So you, you got the... I suppose the most e the easiest way to sort of pin it out really is you you got the shot of him after he shoots the cops at the start like leaning into the car to to check out the the stump of the guy's head yeah. saying whoa shot yeah yeah we they, we watched it on Blu-ray so it's very explicitly the director's cut okay cool I didn't know if you would watch it streaming I don't know which version is available for streaming but uh, yeah the director's cut um especially in that scene with Paul Rufka goes further than it probably should but <laughs> yeah. uh, we can we can get into that and th let me tell you the deleted scenes on the blu-ray further than that yeah the scene where he's cutting up poor old Rutger it does go for a while and I think it's just them letting John Durat 
like vamp for a little bit. And you gotta you gotta admit, those practical effects are impressive. Yeah. That we can move into that in a minute though. I didn't include this in the production history, but I do think it is worth talking about here just at the top. Because of how political this movie is, because of the sort of ideological pivot that Mick has made, he did exhibit some sort of anti-foreigner tendencies in the first film, but that was pretty tamped down in comparison to what's on display here. It's very much an ideological thing in this movie. He, He explains his whole manifesto to Paul. At one point, it's worth noting what the the state of play was in Australian politics at the time that this movie came out. The beginning of 2014, 2013 had seen the election of Tony Abbott and the the conservative coalition government that he led. Uh, He had run very much on this sort of anti-immigration, anti-asylum seeker thing that has been a feature in Australian politics for a very long time now. We do not accept asylum seekers who arrive via boat for some reason, because basically because it was turned into a political football post 9-11, we instead put them in offshore detention facilities to be processed and then eventually sent. Either either they can choose to go home or they can find somewhere else to go. The stated, the stated aim is to process them in offshore facilities, but they're really just kept there. Yes, and it's very difficult to find other places for them to go. It's They can't go home because it's unsafe for them to go home. And basically what ends up is, you know, people being held in these sort of chain-linked barbed wire fence, you know, things on this island out in the middle of the ocean for, you know, 10 years. There are a lot of suicides, a lot of suicide attempts. There are children who have grown up in those facilities. It's, uh, it's kind of a national shame. Australia has been repeatedly found to be in violation of human rights law by the United Nations for this. We have found to be in violation over and over and over again because it is considered arbitrary detention by the UN. And it continues today. Also at this time, Pauline Hanson, the far-right fringe extremist politician, had just started her comeback after a decade in the wilderness. She is the leader of the Australian political party One Nation. She is very, very far-right, very, very fringe conservative. And has actually been caught or her people have been caught trying to organise things with the NRA from over in America. Yes, to relax Australia's gun laws. That was a big thing last election. She is, let's not beat around the bush here, a racist. She's awful. She's a clown. Yeah, she, in her maiden speech to Parliament, fairly infamously talked about how Asians were swarming Australia, and she has had a lot of very, very unfortunate things to say about Muslims, about uh, Aboriginal rights. She basically you know, wore the burqa into Parliament at one point several years ago to kind of make a mockery of it and to suggest that it was unsafe. Yeah, and it's like, you literally walked into Parliament simply by showing your ID. So, kind of defeats your own point there. And here's the thing, she also makes subpar fish and chips. Well, she used to, not anymore. (laughs) One of my favourite little... Asterix's footnotes to that whole story was that her old fish and chip shop and I don't know if it's still owned but at one point it ended up being owned by an, an Asian couple which I thought was great. Awesome. Yeah. Also the Cronulla riots 
Yeah, that had happened in 2005, the same year that Wolf Creek came out. That was our big race riot. We like to pretend that we, we don't have the same problems as America does. But actually, if you look at our recent history, we have quite a few of the same. I remember when Donald Trump started to separate kids from their families and putting asylum seekers in, in cages during his administration and the, the outrage that I saw from American media. And I, I, I was like, geez, you know, right. That's, that's right. Most of the world considers this to be this awful thing, but we've been doing it for 20 years, I'd actually was was kind of alarmed at how desensitized I'd become to the idea. Anyways, on, on that happy note, I, I think it's fairly obvious that all of this, you know, political stuff has been infused into the character of Mick. He is far more overtly political in this second film than he is in the first. He echoes a lot of the arguments being put forth by people by Pauline Hanson. Obviously, in a, in a more extreme degree, Pauline Hanson has never advocated the killing of foreigners. But, but yes, it, it takes her sort of rhetoric and, and the rhetoric of asylum seekers and, and immigrants and that whole idea, the whole foolish idea of, you know, Australian culture under threat by, by incoming foreigners. It takes that false idea and, and sort of pumps it all into this... Yeah. serial killer who is at the same time as we have already mentioned this sort of figure of the Australian ideal of the helpful friendly Bushman the larrikin the Steve Irwin figure yeah. who is then cut through with these darker realities of modern Australia and, and, and indeed of colonial Australia as well Australia going back to its to the arrival of white settlers I've done a lot of thinking about Wolf Creek and Wolf Creek 2 and the Stand series and I've actually analysed this through the lens of Australian Gothic. Now, Gothic does not mean dark and dreary. It means the analysis of symbols and Gothic cinema or Gothic art is... The danger is not external. The danger is internal. Yeah. Yeah. I wouldn't even go... I would I would actually disagree with you there. I think that's part of it. But I think that the idea of it is is, is this sort of awesome power that is that is oppressive that is bearing down on us yeah it might be internal it might be external it might be interdimensional you know it it is this sort of haunting epic kind of thing yeah. if you look at these shots of the outback and these long stretches of road and you don't see anyone yeah it's terrifying in its openness and it and it's those feelings of being inconsequential are coming from inside and i think that's what harley's trying to get at there are three types of australian horror that i've been able to analyze the horror that exists in the suburbs things like the babadook boys in the trees or even uh lake mongo that that's mm. very based on suburban fear yeah suburban anxiety sort of modern modern middle yeah. class australia the general malaise and then you've got stuff like animals animal horror animal based horror like you said rogue and stuff like rogue, that rogue boar razorback yeah and th then you've also got fears skippy. of the outdoors skippy <laughs> well lake mongo is sort of like a bridging of the gap picnic at hanging rock the nightingale and those ideas of the australian bush but then there's also the fear of the australian outback the outback is vast, and that's where the fear comes from. It's it's not a fear of what could be behind the corner. It's the fear that you are alone, but not as alone as you'd like to be. And that's the interesting thing about horror as a genre, is it tends to reflect 
the fears of the culture and of the time that it was made in. You know, you always go back to like Godzilla as this this sort of monster that emerges in Japanese fiction like a decade after the nuclear bombs went off. He is he is animated, woken up by nuclear energy, and he ends up being this giant monster that rampages through cities, knocking down buildings and destroying everything in his wake. I mean, it's explicitly atomic in its connections there. It's, it's very And then he much... gets to the point where he does flying sidekicks against people. Yeah, but then you know you get all the serial killers coming out in America in the seventies and eighties. You know your Ted Bundys and your Ed Geins and people like that, and all of a sudden you start seeing Friday the Thirteenth and Halloween, and you know it it reflects what's going on at the and time. Friday the Thirteenth has this vibe of it's in the woods. It's it's a summer camp. It's such an American concept. Yeah. Like and and the woods being a thing. It's the same as we're in Australian Gothic of. The woods is this bridging point. It's this liminal space between the city, the suburbia, and further out into the wilderness. Yeah. Where anything can be out there. The outback specifically is a imagination space. A dreamscape, if you will. It's sort of untamed. It's an area we don't control. It's not 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 really as scary when it's when it's in a city or a town or something. I mean, there's 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 civilization everywhere. There's police. There's neighbors. There's strangers on the street. But out in the woods, is there's no one. And the idea that you could be out there is totally cut off from modernity and from help. That's a, fr- a frightening idea. And certainly that that transfers here into into the outback. That you have all of these vast open spaces that are very un- unpopulated out in the middle of Australia. It's different to the fears you'd have. In the woods, because in the woods, your visibility is reduced. In the outback, Mm. you can see. You can see further than you normally would in a safer place. You can see for miles. And, And there's something so horrific and sublime about that. It's lonely. It's desolate. Yeah. Because you can see it. And it can see you. Do you have anything to add, Harley, from your, from your research about the Wolf Creek crater? As yes, it is in okay. real life. Because this is an actual meteorite crater. Like, the, the, yes. the place they go in the film is real. The Wolf Creek crater in the movie is based on the Wolf Creek crater. W-O-L-F-E. Yes. It was named after Robert Wolf, who uh, was the first person who recorded acknowledging its presence in 1947. Yeah, they are generally pretty accurate in the history they give of the crater yeah. in the movie, aren't they? Mm. That it was discovered by miners, like the history they give in the first film? It, sort of. It was discovered while they were looking for a place to Yeah, because mining was a really big thing out in the outback. The local Jaru First Nations people, however, called it Kandi Malal, and knew of its presence for ages, ages back. They had stories of this crater about stars falling from the sky and landing and changing not only the topography of the area, but also how the area felt because of this landing. And the idea of the Wolf Creek crater, as we see in the movie, that's the actual actual crater. The idea that that can be translated with this idea of the landing of the first fleet. The landing of something that changed. A transformational event that sort of changed the landscape. The landscape, it changed the function of a lot of the places in this country. 
And Mick is symbolic of that idea. He is the ultimate extreme of White Australia's obsession with owning the land. He calls it his country. Very explicitly, this is his, his land um, that these folks have walked into. He resorts to mass murder and brutal, violent cruelty to keep his control over the land that wasn't his to begin with. And when it is explained that uh, about the first fleet and the subsequent ships full of convicts from England, even talking about that gives him the shits. Because it is brushing up against one of his hypocrisies. He's very, very anti-English. Um, so let's talk a bit about Mick and how he relates to the Gothic. In the first movie, you could be you could be convinced that Mick was a human being. Yeah, he's not. Yeah, he, he symbolically he's not. He's sort of he's never really explicitly. Oh, functionally, he's not human. This might be a little bit of a spoiler. For the series, but... He gets out of a situation that a human shouldn't be able to. He's, yeah, you're, you're talking in sort of the way that Michael Myers is yeah. not human. He's... He's something more. He's the spirit of white Australia. That's not how he's explicitly stated in the first season of the Stan series, but that's the comparison. He is that idea of the white man coming here and controlling the land, of turning it into a hunting ground, into a car yard, into his. A mine. Isn't there... I read something about there being a scene in one of the seasons of the series that um, Aboriginal elders attempt, like, a spell or something to incapacitate him? Yeah, they perform a ritual called singing, and it physically hurts him for miles away. Yeah. Yeah. And he recognizes what they've done. Yeah, that's... I do love the sort of vague cosmic elements that are running through the uh, the Wolf Creek. I, I, I like that they don't get so specific, but I love that it's there. And I hope that it gets explored more. There's a moment in the second film where when Ryan Kaur's character is on the phone to his girlfriend, and when it starts... When the phone starts wigging out, you hear his laugh. Yeah. You hear Mick's laugh in the static. I think there is something The the older couple who wrong. take Paul in after he's escaped Mick state there's something wrong with the ground. That Yeah, they, they theorize it's magnets or something, but they don't seem particularly sure. You think it's what, sorry? I think it's Mick. Mick is Well it's sort of it goes back to in the first film when they're when they're at Wolf Creek Crater and their watches stop at the same time. It's it's like if you consider the timeline of that sequence, it's not right when they get there. It's not when you would think a magnet would automatically stop a, a watch when it comes too close. It's like, no, they've been there for hours by the time it stops. And then when you see all of the the footage in Mick's, like, dungeon with all of the camcorders he's taken from his victims, they're all saying the same thing. Oh, a watch has stopped. The car batteries died. There is sort of an implication there of, well, obviously something... Something common there is affecting it, but also the idea that that Mick might be an agent of that phenomenon is is implied there as well. And there's a, a mention of that uh, the character of I think his name the male character is it Ben in the first movie yeah. Yeah. tells a story of you know lights in the sky in the Australian outback, which is a, yeah. an actual phenomenon. It's called the Min Min lights, and probably got a it is very interesting thing that has a lot of very reasonable 
um, hypotheses to explain it, but isn't it so much more fun if it's actually some sort of like supernatural thing yeah. or extraterrestrial? It's often explained away as atmospheric pressure. Yeah, there have been reports though of the lights moving and keeping speed with cars as they drive along the highway. And the idea is that the Outback is a place, like John said, that's liminal. It's transitional. We mentioned this concept, the the desert as imagination space, in uh, when we were talking about identity? Yes. Yeah. And it's much the same here. Mick shouldn't be able to... Mick shouldn't be able to catch up with him that first time. But he does. He shouldn't know where everyone is, but he does. I don't think he does. I don't think he explicitly does. I mean, they avoid him. All the characters in the series, at least in the movies, I haven't seen the the TV show, but a lot of the characters in the series are able to avoid him for short amounts of time. Yeah, but he always catches up. That yeah, it's it's not only the fact he knows the space, but the space seems to enable him that is is in this movie which i noticed for the first time watching it this time that when paul is sort of hiding from him in that sort of field of of bushes as mick's trotting by on the horse that mick is led on to where he is because paul brushes up against the bush and it makes a very large sound Mm. like he's sort of being uh called or you know assisted by the environment and that it's sort of interesting i i i really want to talk about the quiz scene yeah yeah just hold on and it's not even like all of these supernatural type elements are explicit no you can very much read these movies as you know he's just some bloke oh yeah it's all implied it's all implied and that's what i think is so great about these movies it gets a little bit more you know cerebral in the first season of the tv show but it is under the surface it's just sort of hanging there that you can take it and run with it if you want to and here's the thing too he was human and Mm. we see in the series his backstory i'm not going to get too far into it but he eventually grew up and joined the army, went to Vietnam, and learned... He was taught all manner of cruelty over there, as explained by the books and as implied in the films. He uses a punchy trap. The head on a stick uh, technique was something he explicitly states he learned in Vietnam, um, and a lot of his hunting strategies he learned over there. So yes, let's talk about that quiz scene. It's a full 20 minute thing. It's, it's it's great. It's a it's a long long scene of just the two of them talking after after Mick captures Paul. Um, and yeah. the reason I wanted to like jump to this rather than explore the 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 poor German hitchhikers, we can go back to them, but I think that the quiz scene really ties into a lot of what we've been talking about with the character of Mick that here is this sort of test of Australianness. It's this, this test of knowledge that actually, again, has has a political undertone to it. The Don Bradman thing, I mean, <laughs> that's, that's been a, a bugbear of Australian, you know, the Australian citizenship test for a long, long time. It's been a very controversial part of our Australian citizenship test about how much people should really have to know about Don Bradman. My understanding of it is that it is on the, it is still on 
it's not on the final test, but it's on the practice test. Potential, you know, people applying for citizenship still get. But that that was a conversation that was going on in, I mean, there was a brief spurt of it in 2008, 2009. There's a brief spurt of it in 2013, 2014, around the time that this movie came out. There's another brief spurt of it in, I think, 2017. The whole idea of, of whether our citizenship test actually properly quizzes people on the stuff they need to know, you know, stuff like, our judicial system, our, our system of government, you know, our values. The different kind of money we have. Yeah. It can be lo- a lot of the criticism of the test, especially as it in the form it had, was in at that time, was that it was less about teaching or asking if people knew actually important details, but more... Some people said it was objective, like purposefully being obtuse. Um, others suggested it was less about how someone could actually integrate into the functionary side of how Australia works and more focused on social engineering. Yeah, and it certainly provoked a real sort of culture war in the conversations about it as well. You go to any of the old news articles about criticism of, of the test and it's full of awful comments like, oh, if you don't like it, we don't want you anyway, blah, 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 stuff like that, you know, when I've got no idea. And I know Don Bradman is a cricketer. That's it. You know, I have, I've got, I don't know anything else about him because I have no interest. Yeah. I was reading a thing and I was reading uh, Bradman's Wikipedia page. This was for something I was looking at ages ago, or it was one of my Wikipedia sort of rabbit holes. But apparently, Don Bradman is, point for point, one of the best sports people in the world. Or was, before, you know, he died. Which, you know, is is cool, and it's fine to have national pride about that. Yeah. But, like, to suggest that you that that has any relevance as being knowledge that you need to have yeah. to become a citizen of this country is absurd. Yeah, to say that you need to know every lyric to Hell's Bells by Akadaka in order to be able to come into this country is just ridiculous. I want to read an article here. It's actually from the Daily Mail from 2017. I just want to read an excerpt of this. It's covering um, an episode of Q&A in which an academic named Rachel Botsman, who was applying for citizenship around that time, criticised some of the questions on the practice test. And it's just, it's interesting to hear some of the ridiculous things that they suggest need to be known. The Australian citizenship test has been slammed by a top academic who says, knowing Donald Bradman's batting average is not actually a useful thing. (laughs) It isn't. Yeah. Speaking on ABC's Q&A on Monday, Rachel Botsman revealed that she was studying in preparation to sit the test this week and was shocked by some of the questions. The definition of larrikin I don't think is necessary to become an Australian citizen, she said. Ms Botsman said she was surprised to discover questions about cricketers and even Australian cakes in the practice test. Knowing what an Esky or Lamington or who Donald Bradman is, I don't think they should be in the booklet. They're things you will pick up later. I do think certain things need to be changed. Ms. Botsman, an author and academic, called for one change in particular. She said one question asked for a good demonstration of Australian values, but her answer that men and women are treated equally came up as incorrect. Ooh. Ooh. That algorithm's tipping its head. But no, that's not an algorithm. That's a that's 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 too free of free form a question for it to be an algorithm. That's got to be a person judging that. 
which is oh, which is shit. which is which is either a, a a really sexist person judging that, or it's someone who actually has a good understanding of Australian society. <laughs> it's it's like a Schrodinger's bigot. You don't yeah. know. Is it? Yeah. yeah. Is, is it a bigot, or is it actually just someone who's really woke? Like, actually understands what's going on here. <laughs> or, or is it someone who's got a list of acceptable answers for these questions put in front of him? Yeah, acceptable topics or something, I don't know. Yeah. Um, but yeah, like, I, I think it's interesting it's also that... something so nebulous as Australian values is something that... It, it's like asking what are Polish values or, you know, Russian values. It's like, you can't ever say 100% what's... A group of people's values are. Yeah. You can broadly say democratic values. Sure. But... You know, human values. But, yeah, to suggest that there is... And also, it implies that this country has a monopoly on, you know, backslapping and... Mateship. Yeah, it's just bizarre. This article is also a great example of how it is was turned into, like, this ridiculous culture war because you got all these mini Mick Taylors in the comment section. I'm just reading a few of a few of these uh a few of these comments here. Do us all a favor and don't become a citizen then. You have nothing of benefit to add to our society. If all you're going to do is complain then maybe you should stay away. Never heard of her, not interested in her opinion. If she wants to decide what should be a fair citizen if she wants to decide what would be a fair citizenship test, maybe she should go into politics, but she knows no one would vote for her. Until then it has nothing to do with you. Fair citizenship test, fair is misspelled as F A R E. Of course it is. Because Look, of course it, it is. Because of course we get that trite from daily mail commenters. Yeah. What bothers me is that these are clearly the kinds of people, and I'm not trying to make this a value judgment on sections of the population, I'm trying to be fair, but it is very clear that these people are also people who complain about the way Australia is run. They don't like it, so maybe they should leave. Oh yeah, the whole idea that your opinion doesn't matter for X, Y, and Z is, is never yeah, going to like, work for me. It's so hypocritical because you've got all of these people being like, you don't like it, leave it. Why do you go on holiday? Yeah. If you if you if you have a problem with your house, if you get like a draft running through, yeah. you really love the house, like ninety nine percent of it's pretty great, but you got this draft that's running through it. You don't say, bugger, I suppose I need to move house entirely and go back to yeah. my old house. You know, you you, yeah. you acknowledge the problem, you acknowledge that you love your house, but there's a there's an issue here that, that might yeah. be worth looking into fixing. Yeah, if you've got a if you've got a hole in your roof because of water damage, because of a storm, you know, the people in charge of fixing and maintaining the property should probably do something about it before yeah. you have to be moving. Yes, for uh, for our our listeners, Harley and Jean have been... Personal grievance. Harley and Jean have been dealing with, uh, with a leak, a hole that leaks water in the, the roof of, well, your old house now, you've had to move because house. of it, but it took like like close to a year for like proper action to be be taken. You were just and sort of in limbo for a long time. And still don't know action has been taken, <laughs> yeah. which is so great because La Nina is here. She's here, boys. But the symbolic person still applies. She's taken her high heels off and she's come in. She's a sloppy drunk. But when you... Uh... But didn't you send me a picture that when you went up into the roof to check it out, you found like bottle. yeah, a, a, 
a cause bottle, like, propping something up. Yeah, a proper 4X bottle. Someone was on the tools, but also <laughs> on the piss. <sighs> you gotta love it. But anyway, like, the, the idea that if you don't love it, leave it. It's like, you go on holidays to experience new things, don't you? I assume that these people don't love everything about the places they visit. Hmm. That's a person's and, and right people, to not like everything. And people moving here, especially those fleeing war-torn or otherwise unsafe places, kind of didn't love where they were already. For those very specific reasons, so... Yeah, this ultra-patriotic, knee-jerk reaction to anyone saying anything negative about the country. It's like, this woman wants to move here. She wants to move here. She sees enough about the country that is agreeable to want to move here. It's just this one aspect of the process of becoming a citizen that she has disagreements with because it's exclusionist. Anyways, I think it's very smart to 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 utilize the symbolism of that with the Don Bradman yeah. question in, in the yeah. scene, that we are ostensibly still talking about Wolf Creek 2. Um, and I, I do love the... Dennis Lilly! Not fucking Dennis Lilly! It's not Dennis Lilly! It's But there are a lot of, like, <laughs> things like that, too. This this movie undercuts Australian culture every chance it gets in a really interesting way. It kind of weaponizes it by giving it to Mick Taylor, making him the yeah. embodiment of it. He, the whole timey kangaroo down sport. Yeah. A year after this movie came out, became disturbing even in the absence of Mick Taylor because Rolf Harris <laughs> wrote it. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but the most, the most chilling part of that bit with the song is... Why the didgeridoo? Boom! Play a didgeridoo. Keep playing the light suit, Prude Blue. Play a didgeridoo. All together. Tan me eye when I'm dead, Fred. Tan me eye when I'm dead. So he tanned his eye when he died, Clyde. And that's it, dang, I'm on the shed. Hey! Yeah, but the way that they're like really getting into it, and then he—it's—it's it's like Paul is trying to skip the verse. Yeah, mm. and Mick pulls him up. But yeah. there, there's just something so strange and so—I mean, it's a—it's a weird thing that that scene has evolved into at that point. That it's the serial killer and this guy he's abducted and is threatening to power sand the fingers off of. It'd be a wonderful two-hander on stage. Yeah, they're a wonderful two-hander, they're getting into it, they're drinking beer with each other, and then it just takes that, you know, mean pivot again. It's just a really interesting thing. I do love the whole singing Advanced Australia Fair, how Mick goes, I hate that song. Because it's like, <laughs> yeah, it's not the national anthem he would know, is it? No, it'd be Waltzing Matilda, which, you know, he also... Waltzing Matilda is also uh, is also appropriated in this. Well, Waltzing Matilda should be our national anthem. Advanced Australia Fair isn't that great. I think it was like one of them in the referendum. I mean, it is about... Uh, I mean, I could see why the, uh, the intellectual elite wouldn't be too on board with it, because it is about like a, a criminal stealing things and then um, killing themselves when the police close in. But... <laughs> Suicide by sure. Billabong. <laughs> I mean, it does reflect the kind of criminal history of Australia. 
I do have yeah. to say, though, everyone who, who was a fan of Rolf Harris, it's like, we've got John Williamson right there. Just be a fan of him. Come on. We, we, chose, we chose the national anthem in a referendum in 1977. Yeah. The de facto national anthem up to that point had been God Save the Queen because of our relationship with the UK. On the, on the list of potential picks were Advance Australia Fair, which won Waltzing Matilda, God Save the Queen, and something called Song of Australia, which I don't think I've ever heard. You probably have, you just probably don't recall. Why not why why not Down Under by Men at Work? I don't think that'd have been written yet. <laughs> but uh Fair enough, but I mean, in retrospect, it may as well be I mean the I anthem. think I still call Australia home would be a really good national anthem. Yeah. But Advance Australia Fair won with forty three point two nine percent of the vote. It was the majority vote in every state except for the Australian Capital Territory and the and South Australia. South Australia was the only state that voted in majority for Song of Australia, which came last out of all of the four. But the Australian Capital Territory, proving that they continue to be among the best of us in this country, were the only state or territory that voted for Waltzing Matilda as a majority. I have my problems with Advance Australia Fair too, but... The language used isn't necessarily it. It's the fact that the song is incredibly reductive to the uh, pre-colonial history of Australia, but his criticism is absurd. Oh, yeah, yeah it's, it's it's very patriotic, and it, it is sort of a traditional national anthem. It is, you know, the, the, the old-school kind of orchestral anthem kind of mm. sounding thing. It's, it's not really a bop. Uh, but, like, this is just a really, really tight scene. Yeah. It is. It's well acted. But, you know, you get the waltzing Matilda thing, but you get at the beginning when he's with the cops and he's he's dragging Joe from Neighbours across the, across the ground. You've ruined my happiness! <laughs> he's dragging Joe from Neighbours across the ground and he's, like, going, ah, ow, because he's so injured. He says, that'll do, pig. Yeah. You know, the reference <laughs> to Babe. There is the, the line that he has as he's pursuing Paul through the underground sort of lair. He says, somebody's got to keep Australia beautiful, which is the slogan for our, you know, green pick up recycling and put trash in the bin day. Yeah. I do love the idea that Mick Taylor does, like, clean up rubbish. When he's not shooting pigs or shooting tourists, he's, like, he recycles. He is drawn to the German tourists at the beginning because they are illegally camping in a national park. <laughs> and they did put out that fight. You gotta, you gotta either stamp it out or cover stamp it with out or it with dirt. Yeah, he sees it. He sees it from, like, the highway. He sees the like, that's not supposed to be there, you know. It's supposed <laughs> to be in the national park. There is a connection. There's such an interesting connection running through it all. And... And the last thing, and it was something I noticed the first time I watched it, and I've never seen it brought up by anyone else but me. It might have been. I don't know if this is, is my own original thought, but I'd like to think it is. But it has it has kind of a, a mythological element to it, that quiz scene. It, it is reminiscent to me of the Greek myth of Oedipus and the Sphinx, that Oedipus on the road to Thebes encounters the Sphinx, who is this creature, this monster sent by God, who, who guards the way to the city of Thebes and refuses to let anyone pass unless they can accurately answer a riddle. And in some versions, I mean, the, the, the god that he is sent by differs depending on the version, but in some of them, he is sent by Ares, the god of war. And I think that that sort of emphasises 
like that connection there, that symbolism there, I see very strongly, and it kind of emphasizes Mick's connection to Mick's role in the narrative, Mick's role in Outback Australia as sort of almost being an agent of a higher power of something, something more absolute than something dark and brutal. An agent of war. An agent of, of the outback itself, or of white Australia itself, if you want to go in that direction. Some Something angry and, and vengeful. I do like how we start this film with that sequence of um, him being pulled up by the cops. Mm. Because that also does reflect how... Like, one of those cops has the line, that's how we keep, keep up our quotas out here. <laughs> yeah. And the moment that the younger cop talks back to him, and Mick turns around, is the moment he decided to kill him. Well, no, I think it's interesting, because he gives the kid an out. Yeah. He says, are you sure you really want to do this, mate? You know, guy's trying to impress his superior officer, so he, you know, acts like a big man and gets his head blown off. <laughs> yeah. Got it. That, that, the effect on the top of his head being gone is brilliant. Oh, yeah, like, yeah. The prac effects here are stunning. You get that in the mutilation of Rutger's body. Yeah, the dismemberment of Rutger, the guarding of him. It's a lot. Which in and of itself is done to resemble um, the guarding of a pig. Yeah. Yeah. I have a family uh, member who is, you know, a pig hunter up in the, the more rural outback areas of Queensland. And I had the misfortune at the age of like seven to go on an expedition with him once. Jesus. And I... I can't imagine you... Oh, it was a, a dreadful mistake. It was a dreadful mistake, but I I can still remember seeing that pig gutted in, in very much the same way that Rutger is. Oh, this pig's still squealing, Lawson. <laughs> but, you know, that is that is a connection that's drawn in the first film. He identifies himself as a pig hunter. He identifies himself as a pig hunter again to the police at the beginning of this movie. And it is a, a very sort of... I mean, if, you, if you've if you gone to the Aussie Outback, then you'll know that there are a lot of pig hunters out there. And I think what's interesting is that he's very pig-like, in a sense, which angles towards the hypocrisy of his character again, of being a foreign thing, trying to kill foreign things. He... Mick is an introduced species. Hmm. Yeah, the truck that he drives is... It squeals like a pig. Th- those rattling hooks, terrifying. Yeah. Um, also, Mick, the pigs that Mick is shooting are introduced species, invasive, yeah. much yeah. like himself. I do, uh, I do want to just touch on that 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 scene of Rutger being butchered because I do think it is the instance that the movie goes too far. I yeah. think that, and we've talked about this off mic, but when McLean gets the shackles of the classification board take, taken off of him, he has a tendency to go too far with this character. He doesn't I mean, know where the line is. Yeah, he, he co-wrote a couple of books, a couple of prequels, and there's some very, very... Nasty stuff. Very nasty things there. Would never have gotten on, on film and we're the better for it. Yeah. But in this scene, I think he goes too far with what, what happens to Rutger. We see too much of it in the director's cut. I think that in the theatrical cut, it sounds like it's probably the right balance. But in the director's it's cut, uh, you know, the... You get less of the close-ups to the gore and violence in the theatrical. Yeah, we've got to have, like, the shot of him severing Rutger's penis. It's too much it's too big and and that's something that, that it, it is a big element about this movie it is much more graphic than the first movie the first yeah. movie was kind of like it had graphic moments and it had violence in us um and it had blood in us but 
its reputation as being this this sort of bloody, you know, exaltation in gore is not accurate whatsoever. I mean, it's sort of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre thing that the first Texas Chainsaw Massacre has very, very, very little gore in it, and so does Wolf Creek One. It's implied gore. Yeah, but I think that that goes into what this movie is doing differently from the first movie, which is that it's much yeah. it's much more of a thriller. It's a chase movie most of the time. You get sort of Western elements, especially the sort of showdown between Mick and the people in that country house. The the truck that Mick takes to pursue Paul gives airs of a lot of those old school uh, trucker horror movies. Yeah. And once again, the nature helps him. The kangaroos, for whatever reason, look up see the cars coming, and decide to run out in front of Paul's car. They look up, they're like, oh, we're in stock footage, but we want to be in the movie. (laughs) Oh no, those are CGI. Those are CGI kangaroos. And and you get, John Gerard gets to have his sort of, you know, oh, flying flying kangaroos, kangaroos. sorry, Skippy. (laughs) But I, I think actually it's kind of a mistake in that scene when we see the road train for the first time, they make sure to throw in a cut where Mick looks over his shoulder and does what he, he calls, there's a dead trucker there and he says something like, I think it's thanks, blubber guts or something. Thanks for the yeah, truck, yeah. blubber guts. I think it would be much more interesting if he just inexplicably turns up with a road train. Yeah. yeah. We just don't know how he got it. He just sees there. And it's like the way that that continues, like the, the mounting mania of it, the absurdity to think that he would be able to, to aim a road truck over a ravine so that it perfectly hits a small car, like a six by nine foot car, mm. is absurd. But it's an incredible effect. Yeah, but it adds to this broader presentation of Mick in this movie as being kind of superhuman. The one image that sticks with me is not on screen for very long. He's on the horse and he's silhouetted by the setting sun, mm. just riding forward with that music underneath. That is the true essence of what the movie's trying to do take that imagery take the man from snowy river take the old lyric and take your russell coits your steve owens and take that ideal and get rid of it i have an interesting idea to posit to you it would never be the same movie because it would be far glossier i think or it would have to be done a little bit different because of the baggage that would be brought but do you think that there would be room for a version of this movie that was like properly triple a you know Basically, what I'm thinking of is to really double down on that and have an international symbol of Australianness. What if Hugh Jackman was Mick Taylor? I don't know. I'm just talking know. about the. I'm talking about the way that you could sort of play into that Australian symbolism. I'm not saying it's a good idea. I don't think no, it I is. I get it. I, I, I get. I get it, the impulse, but also consider the fact that this. They looked at a couple of different actors, and we can't verify this at all. But I read something that said that Glenn Robbins was looked at from Catherine Kim. Of Taylor. Yeah. Well, is it any so different from <laughs> McLeod's daughters? I mean, to me, that would be so hilarious because it's Russell Coit hunting. I don't people know if Glenn Robbins could do it. Glenn Robbins, even when he's in a serious, serious-ish show like uh, Upper Middle Class Bogan, his line delivery is always hilarious. And I don't think he's got the menace. It, it, it got me thinking, what would happen if you got Russell Coit and placed him in a Wolf Creek movie? <laughs> he would stumble his way also before into killing McTaylor. 
I, I do also, I feel like we're reaching the end here, but I do just want to talk a little bit about his lair at the end. Mm. And yep. and also, following on from that, why he chooses to let Paul go. Um, but first with the lair, I think that that is actually something that, if you haven't gotten that Mick has been transformed into something bigger, something more than human by this point, then the lair should really do it to you. It's do it for you. It's a dungeon. It's not a lair. It look it looks very medieval in design. It's it's got it's literally got gibbets hung from the the ceiling with skeletons in it. You know the old sort of little human shaped cages that people used to be hung from. You know in the public square to to show the public it looks very english yeah but it's also so unreal it's so unreal when when paul starts going through the hallways and he just sees all of the corpses like corpse after corpse after corpse after corpse it's to consider that as in, in a real world context he would have the highest body count of any serial killer ever anywhere and yep. he would have done it all without detection without anyone noticing that this was happening and none of these people ever being found it would you we're talking about literally hundreds of people disappearing in central australia as his victims over the you know however long he however long he's been doing this i know that i think in in the first movie one of the driver's licenses in his collections like indicates he's been doing it at, at least since the 1980s so probably since he got back from vietnam mm. but it, it's unreal. You cannot see it in a realistic fashion. And so you are therefore forced to accept the unreality of it. You're forced to then come to the logical conclusion that no human being could get away with this. And so perhaps no human being has. You come to the conclusion that this isn't a story about human horror, but rather cosmic horror. Yeah. And I think that's so clever. I think that's so clever the way that the whole thing has been structured as as a political allegory, the, the way that Mick has been transformed as a villain. And I think that that maybe, maybe the reason we connect to it in the way that we do and that critics didn't. Well, first, I think there's just an automatic assumption that, you know, horror can't say anything more than it appears to be saying on the surface. And so people don't even want to consider that. I think that's a sort of snobbishness in mainstream critics as, as regards to horror, especially horror that is this graphic. But I also think that international critics can't possibly have the context unless they have studied Australia or are familiar with Australia to see exactly what it's doing. They wouldn't be able to see the criticism. Yeah, it's so layered in, the, in our own cultural geography and our own cultural symbolism and references and themes and politics that you can't that that i feel like that's something that really runs the risk of being missed um if you're if you're not aware of the type of blocks that it's playing with that it's building its story with but all right at the very end here why does he let paul go for fun hmm. why why does he because do anything that would be because that is a harsher punishment. To let him go and have no one believe him. Yeah. I don't know the answer to the question. I really can't come up with one. Because he does indicate before Paul clobbers him over the head that he it, he lied. He is going to... He's going, he's going to uh, to let him go. But that doesn't mean he's not going to kill him. That's the, the, the taunting of Paul there. The implication is that he was always going to kill him. He was just going to unshackle him first, I suppose. But... But I'm going to let you go from here... 
and I'm going to take you down there. Yeah, yeah. but but I, I don't think that's the impression we're meant to get at the end. I don't think we're, we're supposed to leave the movie thinking that Mick's going to, you know, take a Qantas flight over to the UK and find this insane asylum and, and hunt Paul down. I think Mick was trying to prove a, prove a point mm. to him. I, but he's a madman, so who knows? Yeah, what's the point that he's making? I don't know. He's a madman. <laughs> Or is there like a weird kind of, yeah, all right, fair enough, you did answer those questions. Like, he does seem like genuinely <laughs> bewildered by the idea that uh, uh, an English man could know these the answer to these things. I mean, it's like, he's probably thinking, to be fair, you did win the quiz. Yeah, he does seem like kind of amused and taken by Paul in like a bizarre, really macabre way. How many interactions do you think like that he's had with his victims? I don't think many. After the first finger gets grinded off, which is a brutal moment, and really interesting practical spray, he does say, well, you technically are right. And that pisses me off. <laughs> yeah. Because he gives, he gives the technically correct answer, like, why did the British send convicts to Australia and he gives the technical answer you know they'd lost the Americas it was overcrowding of prisons Australia looked like it was full of minerals that could be mined but that's it, it gives the technically correct answer but uh, the answer that Mick is looking for is much more um, you can't say it on the ABC <laughs> yeah it, 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 more four, four letter words involved um mm. But yeah, there's that. But part of me also wonders if if it has something to do with the fact that Paul accidentally kills the other captive. Maybe. That we have this like truly horrific moment where he is going through the halls of these corpses. And there's this woman who just looks like a corpse. She's so emaciated and she's so injured and so, um, you know, just gone. And then all of a sudden she sits up and screams and tries to grab him for help. And then later on, when he's trying to uh, to escape and he finds the punji trap, you know, it again, was, was popularised in the Vietnam War. You know, that's where our modern understanding of the punji trap as, as, a, as a thing comes in. So, very again, very much tied to not only the... Again, it's just so interesting. I'm even just noticing stuff now. It's, it's not only tied to Mick's experience in Vietnam, but it's also tied to the... It's, its use in the modern context is, is by guerrilla fighters fighting against a, a foreign adversary that's coming into their country. Mm. You know, there's just a lot going on there. Anyways, but but the fact that he accidentally pushes the woman into the punji trap because he thinks that it's Mick, whether that has something to do with it, whether in Mick's mind he's like, well, it's cancelling, they cancel each other out, you know, or or whether he's just like that... Then in a perverse it's, fashion, it's just on a whim. yeah, because the mood, the mood took maybe. Yeah, there is a. Am, am I am I wrong, or does it look like the shot of the woman after she's fallen into the, into the trap and is impaled? Is she smiling? I, I don't have know. No idea, and I really don't want to check. Honestly, Lawson, I've never paused it on that moment before, and I don't think I will. I didn't pause it, and I didn't rewind either. But maybe. But um, but it looked to me like like a sort of like oh thank God that she was yeah. gone gone you know yeah which is horrifying to think of. In this world, there's people like me, and there's people like you, and people like me 
eat people like you for breakfast and shit them out. You're nothing but foreign vermin. A stinking introduced species. And it's up to my kind to wipe your kind out. And that makes me the winner. But anyways, we're running out of time here, so why don't we... We've had a very, very long discussion on this, uh, but a good one, I think. So why don't we move on? There are no entries in the IMDb Parents Guide this week. There are very few ways that you can describe what happens in Wolf Creek 2 and have it come across as fun or amusing. Um, (laughs) So why don't we instead move on and say who our MVP is for this movie, what our favourite scene or sequence is, and of course, who we would recast with this podcast patron saint, character actor John Lithgow. Knock, knock, who's there? (laughs) Me! I will start us off and I will say that my MVP for this movie, I think, has got to go to Greg McLean. I was sort of bouncing around between him and Malat. Uh, not Malat. John no, not Malat. <laughs> not Malat. Ivan Malat is no one's MVP. But I was bouncing between him and Gerat. Uh, and and I, I think I've got to... After this whole conversation, though, I've got to come down on the side of, of McLean because it's just so clever, the script. Yeah. The construction of it is so clever filmically he gets such a great production value out of this very low budget that he's working with it's a kind of movie that australian cinema very very rarely attempts we very rarely attempt sort of high intensity high adrenaline movies like this and like i said it's just so incredibly well constructed and it's it's a it's a it's a masterful villain to to create and the way that that villain connects in everything and obviously you know mclean co-wrote the thing as well as did he co-write it or he just write it himself let me just check that he co-wrote it with aaron Stearns. so you know he was involved in the creation of of the the symbolism and the allegory and the meaning under it all as well i think i've just got to go with him here it's it's even though i think that he does have a tendency to go too far and he does in the the rooker mauling scene the the overall effect of this movie and what it accomplishes is i think pretty incredible and uh, i i I will give it to him for that in terms of my favorite scene or sequence we we spent like half the podcast talking about it it's the quiz scene it's like everything that is great about this movie all wrapped up in that one scene it's the politics of it the symbolism of it the undercutting of australian culture the Mick Taylor of it, you you get just such this intense scene. And I think it's it's kind of a gutsy scene. It's a gutsy scene when you really think about it for a horror movie that it has up to this point been actually like really fast paced and intense and full of explosions and car crashes and things and gunshots to stop for a full 22 minutes. I timed it and just have these two guys sitting across from each other talking. And it's And it's the most intense scene in the whole film. Yeah, and uh, I, I, that's really impressive. So I've got to go with that. In terms of who I would recast with John Lithgow, who else could there be but Mick Taylor? Of course, doing the exact same Australian accent he used in Pitch Perfect Three. Uh, yeah, <laughs> in a weird way, it would be a different movie. It would but, be, but in a weird way, it would it would kind of work for the symbolism as well. Having a foreign actor doing a, I mean. We love John Lithgow, but let's be honest, not 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 the world's greatest Australian accent. No. You could even edge towards bad. Sure. 
that would bring the thing toward, I, I think somewhat intentionally so, given the, the pitch perfect, you know, that he is the father of Rebel Wilson. It's, it's, it's very exaggerated, I think, intentionally so in that movie. But I think it would, by doing that here, it would sort of edge it towards outright satire in a way that I think is an, is another direction the series could take at one point with an instalment, but it will be an interesting one. Um, especially given the ideological leanings of Mick Taylor. So, yeah, i got to go there. And also, frankly, there's really not any, any other options. I mean, you've got the cops, you've got Rooker, and I I, I don't think I could uh, sit through that scene if it was John Lithgow. <laughs> other, other than that, it, it, other than that, you just got Paul and that's it. So, yeah, I mean, Mick Taylor, absolutely. Let's, let's go. And you know he can bring the menace. You know he can bring that, like, Trinity killer... Yeah. You know, menace with him. But you would also so, love to him go, It's me! <laughs> yeah. Oh, I love John Lithgow. My MVP would have to be Ryan Kaur. Just, his acting is on point through the whole thing. It's an example of him actually doing a good British accent, as opposed to some of the other work he's done. But the moment that really sticks out to me with his acting is the first time... Mick leaves to get a refill for the drink. How he just starts shaking, which is like such an accurate trauma response, uh, mid trauma. And I don't know, he's just a really, really good performer here. Just an incredible performance. Uh, I've already mentioned before my favorite scene or sequence. It's that bit where Mick on the horse is silhouetted with the sun. It's it's a piece of imagery in the movie that actually scares me because it is such a perversion. Yeah, and I don't know if I can fully agree with Lawson, uh, <laughs> but like you said, there's very little else to go off of here. So I I guess I'll have to agree. It, it's it's difficult when it comes down to minimal cast movies. Yeah. Is, so, oh, I'm not yeah. I'm not advocating for John Lithgow to be cast in this version of Wolf Creek 2. I'm advocating for John Lithgow to be cast in like a satiric version of Wolf Creek 2. <laughs> you would have to change the tone of pitch a bit, I think. But yes. No, definitely. What we really need is like a is like a sort of outback police chief on the on the trail for Wolf Mick Taylor. Like that's who we give the uh the yeah. John Lithgow role to, but such a character does not exist in these movies. You can imagine him with the sideburns and the Akubra. Um so for me, I have to give it to Greg McLean, because of all of the reasons Lawson said how smart the script is. How it's is able to you're able to infer so many things from it. A lot of this stuff that we were talking about with the supernatural elements and with all of that is implied. It's not outright stated. It's very subtle in that sense. And it's also not beating you over the head with the messaging either. The movie's politics is all it is satirical in a sense. It's just yeah, it's just very well put together and I remember seeing this movie in the cinema with our dad, and walking out of it, our dad said that that scene where those two are talk, where Mick and Paul are talking, he said he could see that happening on a stage. And when my dad is saying that the acting in a movie or a scene is excellent, that is when I you know, know it's really sticking that is when out. I know it's really sticking out because I read into things a lot. I read into a lot of the little movements and facial expressions that people make because I've got my own issues. When it cuts through and hits everyone, 
it yeah. you know it really jumps out at me and it's that scene for me it's just incredible i would love to see it performed on a stage it is almost like a little short film in and of itself that all of these scenes prior are just the prologue before the main course and for who i would replace with character actor john lithgow see john jurat is so brilliant as this character that i i can't actively see anyone else playing mick taylor it's just too difficult to extricate all of what he's doing from it he's doing so much to build the character i think i'd maybe maybe replace ryan core with john lithgow maybe like but then again, it changes the movie. Any decision that you make to put John Lithgow in here changes the movie. And if John Lithgow's here, he has to have a big part of the movie because he's the biggest name out of everyone in the movie. I don't know. I think you can, like, imagine... Like, if you just had John Lithgow at the age that Ryan Core was, like, as a young man, and he's American instead of British, you can move that over. Maybe. 26-year-old Lithgow versus John Jurat. I love the idea of whatever his age, John Lithgow versus John Durat. I don't know. It's it's a difficult one to do this John Lithgow thought experiment for, because there aren't many choices. Now we will vote on whether or not we're a pro Wolf Creek 2 podcast or not. Lawson, why don't you start the vote? Yes. I think that this is a very interesting film. It's an ambitious film. It's a very well-executed film. It's, it's maybe a little messier than the first movie. It's not quite as tight and tautly constructed as the first movie, but it's trying for so much more, and it is 99% of the time succeeding. So, yes, I am, I am going to say pro this movie. Uh, I, I wish that Australian... I wish that the Australian film industry made more movies like this. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a great, interesting, well-done thing. So, yeah. Uh, for me, it's yes. This movie has lived in my head for a very, very long time. And it's incredibly smart, incredibly critical of a lot of the worst parts of Australian society. And it's also just really, real do- really, really well done on a technical level. Cinematography is great, practical effects are out of this world, and the acting is fantastic. So, yeah, of course. Yeah, and I'm pro this movie for all of the reasons that, you know, we've talked about. It's better than the first movie, for my money, because the first movie is really brutal and nasty. And it doesn't have that little je ne sais quoi that the second one does. The scene in the dungeon where they're talking goes a long way to giving this movie real art to it. You know, it's not just... I know that this might sound silly because I'm a big horror fan. It's not just a horror movie. It's a little bit... It's got something intangible, just a little bit more to it. Alright, so... Yes, we indeed are a Pro Wolf Creek 2 podcast. (laughs) So yeah, uh, now we will go through our process of saying whether we are pro, against, or ambivalent for movies that we have done previously as deep dives, but didn't have the sequence for when we were doing them. Lawson, what movies are we covering? Uh, Well, let's go through them one by one. Ocean's Eleven, I am saying apathetic. Yeah, middle of the road for me. Apathetic. Vanilla Sky, I am saying pro. 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 
Lord of the Rings trilogy, I'm saying pro. 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 The Hobbit trilogy, I'm saying apathetic. If they were all more in tune with the first one, I'd be pro. Pro, I still really love them. Uh, the Royal Tenenbaums, I'm saying apathetic. Pro, pro, I quite liked it. Well, there you go. Actually, if my looking at this is correct, next week will be our last retrospective segment. Ah, oh, sick. Hey, how about that? So what do we have next well, week? Well, next week we will be talking about a very different movie. We will be talking about The Chronicles of Narnia, The Lion, The Witch, and The Wardrobe. Perhaps our longest title yet, but but yes, a, a very different movie. Much, much less scary, although I do have recurring nightmares that uh, Tilda Swinton is living in my closet. If anyone would like to follow along at home... Nightmares you... or dreams? Nightmares. If anyone would like to follow along at home, it is available for streaming in Australia on Disney+. Plus. It is also available for purchase or rental on the Amazon, YouTube, Fetch, and Apple stores. If you would like to reach us, you can find us at each of our blogs. You can find Lawson at XRD, the Candy Counter, if you're joining myself at On the Bright Side. You can also visit our Twitter, which is the best place to give us episode-specific feedback and film recommendations. Have you seen Wolf Creek? Have you seen Wolf Creek 2? Have you read the books? Have you seen the series? I would really, really recommend the series if you're familiar with both of the movies. I'm not so crash hot on the books. You you better believe that it's uh, it is on the TV list. So I shall report yep. back in twenty to thirty years. <laughs> uh, so uh, also, you could like, comment, and subscribe on your podcast type of choice. But just keep in mind, commenting on most podcast apps is for the show on the whole. In specific services, it's episode-specific like Podbean, but your mileage will vary depending on what service you use. But please do like, comment, or subscribe. Well, a lot of things are creeping towards my envisioned future. The future that will, in fact, come to pass. A ten-year-old girl asked for a challenge from her Alexa. This is what the Alexa... This is real, by the way. This was in the news the last couple of days. Haven't heard about this, go on. Plug in a phone charger about halfway into a wall outlet. Then touch a penny to the exposed prongs, the smart speaker said. This is step two of the multi-pronged attack against humanity. (laughs) Some machines are more violent than others, and it's the virtual assistants who will perform the brunt of the culling. So it basically said, hey, electrocute yourself. Yeah. Oh, yes. How... Based off a TikTok challenge. <laughs> see, there's you see, alright. I was I was gonna blame the Alexa, but now now it's just social media. Again. It's human stupidity. The kid was bright enough not to do it, so the kid's okay. Yeah, yeah. I bet you Amazon's corporate lawyers all had heart attacks. They were like <laughs> I Sorry, Alexa said what? I couldn't help but just bring that in because it's exactly what I'm anticipating from virtual assistants in the future. Uh, so, I, ha- I have been Holly Lewis. I've been Lawson Keeney. And I have been, and I will continue to be scared of what these virtual assistants will do. I am Sean Lewis. Goodbye. On a hippie trail, head full of zombies. I met a strange lady, she made me nervous She took me in and gave me breakfast And she said, 